that Carlos Rafael had been too diplomatic. I don't want you to go back to the United States with any illusions that things can be easy in relations between the United States and Cuba. He began. The United States has had the wrong approach in regard to Cuba. It has had a wrong approach historically, which has not yet changed. I am not very optimistic that things can improve. At first, President Carter had created a favorable atmosphere, but then someone got the idea of fomenting agitation in regard to the presence of Cuban military and civilian personnel in Africa. Castro complained. This was deliberate propaganda. Most of it was exaggerated and mendacious. That was followed by the false accusations of Cuban involvement in the Shabatu incursion. This hurt us very much, Castro lamented. Then came the SR-71 overflights and the naval maneuvers. We were working on the premise of the possibility of improving relations with the United States. Now these premises have been refuted by the facts I have mentioned. There should be no mistake. We cannot be pressured, impressed, bribed, or bought. Although Fidel spoke softly, he spoke with great intensity and power. This was the first meeting he had with U.S. officials since the ties had been broken, and he just vented all of the anger. Pastor recalled, I felt like I was being run over by a train. Replying to Castro's opening sally, Tarnoff stuck to his instructions. Africa is central to our concerns he began, and Cuba's increased military presence in Africa made diplomatic solutions in the region more difficult. We wish to make it very clear that we are not interested in negotiating our Africa policy with you, and we understand that you are not interested in negotiating yours with us, Tarnoff stipulated. But seventy percent of the time spent in secret talks since April had focused on Africa, as the two sides tried to gauge one another's intentions. Clearly the two countries were still far apart on the issues. I would ask you if you believe these talks have been of any use or have served any purpose, Tarnoff said, challenging Fidel's pessimism. Given the differences, do you feel that our talking is still worthwhile? Yes, I think they are useful, Fidel conceded. Otherwise we would not have agreed to exchange views and opinions. On Africa, Castro reiterated his often articulated position that it was none of Washington's business if Cuba supported its friends in Africa. We have never discussed with you the activities of the United States throughout the entire world, he pointed out. Perhaps it is because the United States is a great power. It feels it can do what it wants. Perhaps it is idealistic of me, but I never accepted the universal prerogatives of the United States. I never accepted, and never will accept, the existence of a different law and different rules. Castro's position on the embargo was also unchanged. It was not right for Washington to tie lifting the embargo to Cuban policies in Africa. The embargo was a unilateral imposition by Washington, and Cuba would make no concessions to have it removed. Maybe you have gotten to like the blockade. Maybe you have gotten fond of it. You always have a different pretext for using it against us. Fidel mused. We will never surrender to it. We are determined, he warned the Americans. We are prepared to bear our cross as long as necessary. As the conversation headed into its fifth hour, Tarnoff raised the issue that had prompted the administration to send him and Pastor to Havana in the first place, 
the imprisoned CIA agents. With Cuba freeing thousands of its own citizens jailed for political reasons, could not the four remaining U.S. prisoners be freed as well? It is not possible now, Castro said flatly. I don't have enough confidence in the relationship. He had already freed several Americans, along with the several thousand Cuban prisoners, but we have had no gesture from the United States in exchange. Nevertheless, the possibility of an informal exchange for the release of the Puerto Rican nationalists was still on the table. I do not understand why you are so tough on the Puerto Ricans, Castro said in exasperation. The U.S. could make a gesture and release them. Then we would make another gesture, without any linkage, just a unilateral humanitarian gesture, and the U.S. does not do it. But if you do something for them, we will do likewise, he promised. As the meeting concluded at 3 a.m., Castro seemed more sanguine about the dialogue than he had been when the conversation began. I have the impression that this has been a very fruitful exchange, he said, and proposed that the dialogue continue. The bottom line, however, was that Tarnoff and Pastor returned to Washington empty-handed, without the U.S. prisoners and without any Cuban policy concessions on Africa. In his report to Carter, Brzezinski argued that the two sides were at an impasse. We reiterated our position that the embargo was related to their military activities in Africa, and they completely and unequivocally rejected that, Brzezinski wrote. We should have no illusions about their intentions in Africa. They will not be helpful. They do not view developments in Africa as we do. They probably define their interests in Africa differently than we do. They want to play an important role in Africa, and if that means they will have to live with the embargo, they are reconciled to it. Brzezinski's assessment that there was no possibility of common ground in Africa was wrong, but it would be almost a decade before another U.S. administration was able to identify and build on the convergence of U.S. and Cuban interests that Padron, Rodriguez, and Castro himself hinted at. Brzezinski was right about one thing, though. Cuba's policy in Africa was more important to Fidel Castro than normal relations with the United States. For Washington, Castro's tough message and his refusal to release the U.S. prisoners marked the final failure of the secret talks. Looking back, there were threads of the conversations that, had the two sides grasped them firmly, might have helped unravel what Fidel called the tangled ball of yarn of bilateral relations. Padron's suggestion to Newsom in New York that Washington and Havana should discuss ways of cooperating to secure diplomatic solutions to African problems was an opportunity missed. Another was Tarnoff's assurance to Carlos Rafael Rodriguez that Washington did not expect or need Havana to make formal commitments to the United States limiting its options in Africa, but rather the United States would simply watch for and respond to constructive Cuban behavior. A third was Castro's aside, in his meeting with Tarnoff and Pastor, that while overall relations cannot get any better, with the embargo in place, progress might still be made on specific bilateral issues. All of these exchanges hinted at some flexibility compared to the more rigid public positions of the two sides, but they were roads not taken. In the end, the talks accomplished very little besides the release of the Cuban political prisoners, which was Castro's gambit to get the talks started rather than a product of the dialogue, and a degree of confidence building among the negotiators, which would prove important when they met again across the bargaining table in the future. 
Years later, Newsom still thought the discussions could have been more fruitful. I've often felt that if we'd been able to say, we are prepared to discuss these other issues, but you Cubans have to understand that there's a very serious political issue that we have to face in any agreement we would reach, and that's the issue of the Cuban troops in Africa, that would have been a somewhat different approach. Newsom did not gainsay the depth of the very, very, very profound difference between the U.S. and Cuban positions, but he viewed them with a diplomat's eye. The State Department's approach was to try to start with a potentially manageable issue and see if we couldn't get some solution to it, and then kind of go from there, maybe take other steps that would be mutually beneficial and hopefully end up in some more normalized relationship, he explained. Zbig's approach was much more strategic. He wanted to have the kind of meeting with the Cubans that Kissinger had with the Chinese, you know, which was a strategic discussion of where are we going, whose interests are what, and what are the big issues. Can we make any progress on those? because they are the ones that are really important. And those are two totally different concepts. As epilogue to the secret talks, the exchange of the CIA prisoners for the Puerto Rican nationalists came to fruition after all. A few weeks after meeting with Tarnoff and Pastor, Castro hosted ten members of Congress and repeated his proposal for a reciprocal prisoner release. On the delegation was Congressman Benjamin Gilman, Republican of New York. A year earlier, Gilman had played a central role in constructing a three-way prisoner exchange involving a Soviet spy convicted in the United States, an American prisoner in East Germany, and an Israeli businessman jailed in Mozambique. Gilman had worked with East German attorney Wolfgang Vogel on that exchange. At the time, Vogel gave Gilman a Cuban proposal to trade Puerto Rican nationalist Lolita Lebron for CIA agent Larry Lunt. Gilman, in turn, had passed the offer to Carter officials. Nothing came of the Cuban feeler, however, because President Carter was unwilling to grant clemency to Lebron or the other imprisoned Puerto Ricans. A year later, energized by his trip to Cuba, Gilman turned his attention to freeing the CIA prisoners by lobbying the Carter administration to accept Castro's reciprocal humanitarian gesture. At the NSC, Pastor thought the trade for the CIA agents in Cuba made good sense, so long as there was no explicit quid pro quo. Public sentiment in Puerto Rico favored clemency for the nationalists, most of whom were eligible or nearly eligible for parole anyway. Brzezinski asked the Justice Department to report on the pros and cons of granting clemency, but Justice responded that the issue was a domestic matter, and therefore none of the NSC's business. Months passed with no further word, until suddenly, out of nowhere, Pastor recalled, the Justice Department leaked the story that the Attorney General had recommended clemency for the Puerto Ricans and the President would announce it shortly. And so he did, on September 6, 1979. Eleven days later, good to his word, Castro ordered the release of the four remaining CIA prisoners, Larry Lunt, Juan Tour, Everett Jackson, and Claudio Rodriguez Morales. Cool but Communicative the end of the secret dialogue in December 1978 left the Carter administration without a clear policy direction. If movement toward normalization was premised on Cuban concessions in Africa, and they refused to make any, what should Washington do next? In preparation for an interagency meeting to review Cuba policy in May 1979, the State Department prepared a briefing paper laying out three options. One, 
dialogue with increased engagement, which was essentially a return to the early 1977 policy before Brzezinski convinced Carter to condition further progress on Cuban withdrawals from Africa, two, punitive measures against Cuba, which involved rolling back some of the bilateral agreements already reached and imposing new sanctions, and three, containment, which focused on denying to Cuba targets of opportunity in Africa and in this hemisphere by strengthening U.S. allies through increased foreign assistance. State favored the first option, arguing that Brzezinski's conditionality so far has been ineffective and it has at the same time deprived us of bargaining quids in other areas of interest to us. Thus we find ourselves at a sterile impasse. State's position paper went on to suggest lifting the embargo on the sale of medicine and resuming regular air service to Cuba in order to facilitate the emigration of Cuban ex-prisoners and family visits by Cuban-Americans. These low-cost concessions could be used to restart talks with the Cubans on areas of interest to Washington, including Africa and Central America, where U.S.-backed governments were facing a rising tide of popular opposition. The briefing paper sidestepped the main argument against this strategy, that Washington had already held six rounds of talks with Havana since April 1978 and made essentially no progress on the issues of principal concern. The second option was a poor alternative because there was not much Washington could do to Cuba by way of sanctions. A basic problem with such an approach is that short of acts of war, such as a naval blockade, it is not likely to have any appreciable effect. State argued. However, it would, in all probability, push Havana and Moscow closer together. At the NSC, Robert Pastor prepared a briefing paper for Brzezinski countering State's menu of alternatives. He titled it, Putting the Cubes on Ice, and began with some stark truths. Since 1970, in our relationship with Cuba, American policy has been driven out of unmitigated frustration to adopt some of the most ineffective and immoral policies in U.S. history. This frustration is a function of three simple facts, which are still valid. One, Cuba causes us terrible problems. Two, Cuba is a little country and we are a superpower. And three, we have almost no leverage or influence over the Cubans. Despite the disparity in power between the two nations, there was no way for Washington to make Cuba behave. Thus, whatever the interagency meeting decided to do, Pastor concluded, it can only affect Cuba on the margins. Pastor proposed his own bundle of policy initiatives, which he dubbed cool but communicative. Washington should maintain channels of communication with Havana, but at the same time we should seek to tighten the wall around the Cubans. That meant urging Western nations to cut off financial credits to exacerbate Cuba's debt problems, undercutting Cuba's leadership in the Third World by emphasizing its dependence on the Soviet Union, and lobbying hard against Cuba's bid for a seat on the United Nations Security Council. Pastor, who began as a believer in normalization, had become disillusioned by Cuba's activist policy in Africa. I ended up at a very different place than I began, he acknowledged. Pastor's policy bundle amounted to a slightly refurbished version of the policies of diplomatic isolation and economic denial that Washington had followed without much success since the 1960s. Indeed, it was the unwillingness of U.S. allies to continue cooperating with such measures that first led Kissinger to contemplate normalizing relations with Cuba. Now, 
policy was coming full circle back to where it had been in 1973. Brzezinski chaired the interagency meeting on Cuba on July 20th, the day after the triumph of the Sandinista Revolution in Nicaragua, not an auspicious moment for improving U.S.-Cuban relations. Vance argued for state's option of renewed dialogue. Brzezinski argued for Pastor's cool but communicative strategy of isolation. Neither gave any ground. The participants explored different strategies for the U.S., the meeting summary read, but we did not reach any conclusions. The group agreed only that Washington should continue to encourage moderate voices in the non-aligned movement to resist Cuban efforts to radicalize it and should share evidence of Cuba's military buildup with friendly governments. The Soviet Combat Brigade In the spring of 1979, Brzezinski tasked the intelligence community to prepare an assessment of Cuban-Soviet military cooperation around the world. The National Security Agency concluded in June that there was evidence of a Soviet ground force unit in Cuba, a brigade separate from the military advisory group. On August 28th, with most of official Washington out of town on vacation, the National Intelligence Daily, NID, which compiled key intelligence information for more than 400 clients in executive agencies in Congress, reported on maneuvers by the Soviet unit and labeled it a combat brigade. The phrase was chosen arbitrarily by the author of the NID, who simply assumed that if the brigade was not part of the Soviet training mission, it must be intended for combat. Within days, the NID was leaked to a reporter at Aviation Week magazine. Senior administration officials were well aware of the political firestorm that could ensue from news of Soviet combat troops in Cuba. Secretary Vance's primary concern was the impact on SALT, the Strategic Arms Limitation Treaty, already encountering heavy weather in Congress, recalled David Newsom. Vance pulled together his senior aides to devise a damage control strategy. State would contact both the Soviets and the Cubans to warn them of U.S. concerns about the brigade and seek an explanation for its presence. With luck, they might resolve the incident through quiet diplomacy before the news broke in the mainstream press, just as Henry Kissinger had diffused a potential crisis over construction of a Soviet nuclear submarine base at the Cuban port of Cienfuegos in 1970. Newsom was tasked to brief key congressional leaders so they heard the news from the administration before they read it in the morning paper. The next day, Newsom began calling majority and minority leaders in both the House and the Senate, along with the chairs and ranking members of the Foreign Affairs Committees. All reacted calmly to the news, except for Senator Frank Church, chairman of the Foreign Relations Committee. Church was facing a tough re-election fight, having been targeted by the National Conservative Political Action Committee, NCPAC, for being soft on communism. His 1977 trip to Cuba, in which he spent three days traveling the island with Fidel Castro, became a political albatross when Republicans circulated campaign ads featuring Church and Castro smoking cigars together. Seeing an opportunity to seize the initiative, Church called a press conference to announce the discovery of the brigade and demand that it be removed. In a press conference of his own on September 5th, Vance began by saying the brigade was a very serious matter, but that it had no air or sea lift capacity to enable it to strike outside of Cuba. Asked by a reporter if Washington would demand removal of the brigade, Vance tried to avoid committing himself to any specific action by saying, I will not be satisfied with the maintenance of the status quo. 
But calling the status quo unacceptable locked the administration into a policy of insisting that it be changed, and the Soviets would prove to be much less accommodating than Vance hoped. In hindsight, Vance wrote in his memoirs, I regret not having used words less open to misinterpretation. A central problem for the administration was the paucity of its real knowledge about the brigade. We're still not sure of all our facts, an intelligence official told the New York Times on the same day Vance held his press conference. We don't know how far back this goes, and not knowing that, we don't know why they are there. When Vance asked Soviet Ambassador Anatoly Dobrynin to withdraw the brigade, Dobrynin insisted that the mission of the force was training. They had every right to be in Cuba, they had been there for years, and they posed no threat to the United States. The crisis was an artificial one created by the United States and would have to be solved by the United States. For Brzezinski, the brigade provided an opportunity to demonstrate Washington's toughness in the face of the Soviet Union's strategic advances in Africa and Latin America. He advocated threatening unspecified military action if the Soviets did not withdraw it. Vance wanted to contain the brigade issue, appealing to Moscow's desire to salvage salt as the lever to win concessions. Brzezinski was contemptuous of Vance's refusal to see the brigade in a wider strategic context. Vance and Newsom, he said later, were weak people when it came to dealing with the Soviets. Brzezinski took his case directly to the president. He often used his weekly NSC report as a vehicle for raising broader strategic issues. In the midst of the brigade crisis, he entitled one report, Acquiescence versus Assertiveness. Public opinion in the United States and the world at large viewed the administration as perhaps the most timid since World War II, he began. The problem was a perception that, in the U.S.-Soviet relationship, the Soviet side is the assertive party and the U.S. side is more acquiescent. The perception was not wrong, Brzezinski wrote. In tone and occasionally in substance, we have been excessively acquiescent, and the State Department was the principal culprit. Today, Brzezinski warned, much of the world is watching to see how we will behave on the Soviet-Cuban issue. Failure to cope with it firmly can have the effect of vitiating your foreign policy accomplishments and conclusively stamping the administration as weak. On the surface, Brzezinski's report exemplified the sort of broad strategic thinking that Carter found so attractive in his national security adviser. But it was also a not-too-veiled appeal to what David Halberstam, in The Best and the Brightest, called the manhood argument. Atop the memo, Carter wrote a single word, good. After Vance's fifth inconclusive meeting with Dobrynin, Carter wrote directly to Soviet President Leonid Brezhnev via the hotline. The presence of the brigade was a matter of genuine and deep concern to the U.S. government and the American public, he wrote. This concern is not an artificial creation. He appealed for a positive Soviet response to resolve the crisis and preserve the SALT agreement. Brezhnev responded two days later, offering only assurances that the Soviet forces were part of a training center and would remain so. This was substantially what the Soviets had been saying all along, but it could be fashioned into a plausibly successful outcome, which Carter announced to the nation in a televised speech on October 1st. The ill-timed tempest over the brigade did nothing to improve U.S.-Cuban relations. Wayne Smith had only just arrived in Cuba to take over from Lyle Lane as chief of the interests section when the Soviet combat brigade crisis broke. 
On August 29th, he received instructions to notify Cuba of Washington's concern over the Soviet brigade and suggest it be withdrawn. Vice Minister Pellegrin Torres replied that Soviet military personnel in Cuba were none of Washington's business. When Vance and Carter said the status quo was unacceptable, Smith quickly cabled Washington that they should not repeat such a declaration unless they were prepared for a confrontation. Whatever Soviet inclinations might be, I wrote, the Cubans definitely would not agree to withdrawal of the brigade, and in this instance the Soviets were unlikely to ignore Cuban views. Smith was right, but for reasons even he did not fully understand. Carter's Republican critics were quick to compare the Soviet combat brigade crisis to the 1962 missile crisis, despite the fact that the brigade posed no plausible threat to the United States. Their overheated rhetoric obscured the real echoes of 1962. During the missile crisis, Nikita Khrushchev, looking into the abyss of nuclear war, negotiated a way back from the brink without even informing the Cubans until after an agreement had been reached. Castro was so angry that he came close to breaking off his romance with the Soviets. To reassure Castro that the Soviet Union was still committed to the defense of the revolution, Khrushchev agreed to leave a small contingent of troops on the island when the units guarding the missiles were withdrawn. We pressured the Soviets to leave a combat brigade here, Castro told the authors. We wanted them as a symbol of the Soviet commitment to Cuba. It was precisely this symbolic Soviet presence that Washington rediscovered in June 1979 and dubbed the Soviet Combat Brigade. For the Soviets to acquiesce to U.S. demands that the troops be withdrawn would have been to relive the public humiliation of the missile crisis and to once again betray Cuba's trust by reneging on a solemn promise of military support. This the Soviets would not do, even at the price of salt. Castro believed the Carter administration had intentionally concocted the crisis to sabotage the non-aligned summit just then convening in Havana. For more than a year, Washington had been waging a behind-the-scenes diplomatic battle to encourage pro-Western states in the non-aligned movement to oppose Cuba's efforts to steer the movement toward the socialist camp. Bob Pastor managed the campaign. Pastor was on his honeymoon on the Salmon River in Idaho when the brigade crisis went public. A forest ranger tracked him down, and he was summoned back to Washington. I didn't really think that justified interrupting my honeymoon, but Brzezinski disagreed, Pastor recalled with a smile. I immediately thought, Fidel is going to think we've come up with this as a way to undermine the summit. And it turns out that was exactly what he thought, because later he told me so. In Castro's assessment, the Carter administration's internal divisions had killed any prospect for improved relations. I believed that there were people in the United States who favored the improvement of relations with Cuba and that there were people who opposed the improvement of relations, he told the press. Unquestionably, those who have been struggling against the improvement of relations have won. There was no other way to interpret the constant stream of false accusations and phony issues, Shaba II, the MiG-23 flap, and now the brigade crisis. Castro was right. Brzezinski had indeed won the war with Vance. Vance had insisted that the State Department, rather than the NSC, manage the combat brigade crisis, and he had handled it poorly. He set the terms of the political debate when he called the status quo unacceptable, and then Carter was forced to accept it. 
The fiasco of the Soviet Combat Brigade broke the stalemate between Vance and Brzezinski over Cuba policy. On October 4, 1979, just days after Carter addressed the nation on the Soviet Brigade, he approved a presidential directive, PD NSC 52, outlining a new policy, the purpose of which was to contain Cuba as a source of violent revolutionary change. It spelled out a program of economic and military assistance for the Caribbean and Central America to reduce opportunities for Cuban subversion, a program of diplomacy and propaganda to build opposition to Cuba's role as non-aligned chair, continued efforts to restrict European financial credits to Cuba, and warnings to the Soviet Union that its support of Cuban activism would damage détente. It was, in short, the policy Brzezinski had been pushing for more than a year. PDNSC 52 also included one immediate goal, to press vigorously to preclude Cuba from gaining a seat on the UN Security Council. Traditionally, the chair of the non-aligned movement was easily elected to the Security Council. To foil Cuba's bid for the Latin American seat, Washington recruited Colombia as an alternate and lobbied Latin American delegates and non-aligned moderates. We went full tilt to block them, Pastor recalled. Voting began in late October 1979, and through a record 154 ballots, Cuba held a simple majority but could not win the required two-thirds. Then, just after Christmas, the Soviet Union invaded Afghanistan. The invasion was a diplomatic catastrophe for Cuba. Coming only months after the Havana non-aligned summit, the Soviet invasion of a non-aligned member state demolished the Cuban claim that the Soviets were natural allies of the Third World. If Cuba were elected to the Security Council, it would be presiding in January 1980 when the Council took up the issue of the Soviet invasion. For many members of the non-aligned movement, this was too much especially since the Cubans refused to publicly condemn the Soviet attack. As new instructions from governments around the world arrived in New York, Cuba's majority evaporated and Colombia pulled into the lead. Rather than face the ignominy of defeat, Cuba accepted a compromise, withdrawing in favor of Mexico. Return to Havana in late December 1979, Bernardo Benes approached Peter Tarnoff to suggest another high-level meeting between U.S. and Cuban officials. Tarnoff assumed that Benes was conveying a proposal from the Cubans, as he had the year before. In fact, Benes had not met with Castro for months, and the Cubans had sent no such message. When the State Department, with Carter's approval, contacted Havana to arrange a meeting, Castro assumed the initiative was coming from Washington. The confusion was not dispelled until the meeting was underway. Peter Tarnoff and Bob Pastor received their instructions in the Oval Office from President Carter personally. I instructed them to warn Castro about subversion in Latin America, to re-emphasize the requirements we would have for improved relations with Cuba, and primarily listen to what he had to say, Carter noted in his diary. The president also told them to see if they could convince Castro to publicly criticize the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. Much of the January 16, 1980 discussion in Havana focused on the deteriorating international situation. The demise of détente left Fidel Castro deeply pessimistic about the prospects for third-world economic development and palpably worried about the danger of armed conflict between the superpowers. 
Events drove home to him how much Cuba remained at the mercy of global forces beyond its control. We are small, Fidel said with uncharacteristic humility. We are really like a grain of sand and cannot really contribute very much to resolving the many events which have been unleashed. The invasion of Afghanistan had taken Cuba by surprise. Why things happened the way they did, I do not understand, Castro confessed. The Soviets had neither forewarned him of the invasion nor briefed him about it. Unquestionably, Cuba's bid for the UN Security Council seat had been hurt by the invasion, Castro acknowledged, and it had greatly complicated Cuba's position as leader of the non-aligned movement. We are playing two roles, he explained. We are playing the role of the revolutionary, and we are also playing the role of the member of the non-aligned movement. It's not easy. He disapproved of the invasion, but Cuba would not publicly join with the United States to criticize the Soviet Union. Cuba's disagreements would be expressed privately. Soviet assistance had been a matter of life and death in our confrontation with the United States, Castro pointed out. We are not opportunists, nor are we ingrates. We cannot improve relations with the United States by becoming enemies of the Soviet Union. And why should they have to? The Cold War put small countries like Cuba in a vice between the superpowers. We cannot conceive that friendship with the United States has to imply a break with the Soviet Union, he said plaintively. Tarnoff and Pastor raised the issue of Cuban support for revolution in Central America and the Caribbean as an obstacle to improving bilateral relations. Castro was adamant that Cuba's aim was not to cause Washington problems. In Panama, he pointed out, he had urged General Omar Torrijos to avoid a confrontation with Washington over the canal and instead seek a diplomatic settlement. In Nicaragua, we favor a moderate government and a multi-party system, and we are not interested in causing conflict with the United States, he continued. But in El Salvador and Guatemala, revolutionaries were fighting against murderous reactionary regimes, and Cuba would not repudiate its right to help them. Reviewing the situation in Africa, Tarnoff noted diplomatic progress toward an independent Zimbabwe under the auspices of a Lancaster House Accords, and Castro expressed Cuba's support for the Accords as well. Turning to Namibia, occupied by South African troops who staged periodic attacks across Angola's border, Tarnoff asked Castro directly, If there is a resolution of the Namibian question, would Cuban combat forces be withdrawn from Angola? We will be happier than you when we can withdraw our forces, Fidel replied. It is easier to put troops in than to take them out. Cuba had already withdrawn about 30% of its troops from Ethiopia, he noted, and he wanted to resume withdrawals from Angola as well, but the Angolans would not agree to it because of ongoing South African incursions from Namibia. When Namibia is resolved, Fidel said, we will have good arguments to reduce our troop strength not unilaterally, but based on discussions with them. As the ten-hour conversation was winding down, they turned to the issue of Cuban political prisoners, where a serious logistical snafu had arisen. Cuba had released some 3,900 prisoners in 1978, of whom 2,500 wanted to emigrate to the United States along with their families. Processing of the prisoners by U.S. immigration officials had been extremely slow, as the Justice Department insisted on meticulously reviewing every individual case. 
Washington had also agreed to take another 1,000 ex-prisoners who had been released previously. But several thousand other ex-prisoners were still in Cuba, and the proposed U.S. limits would leave them and their families stranded there. The United States could not absorb them, Tarnoff explained. Fidel seemed taken aback. What are you going to do with the rest of the ex-prisoners who hope to go to the United States? Are you just going to leave them here? Although he didn't say so, Castro suspected that Washington's aim was to stoke political discontent by marooning the ex-prisoners in Cuba. Washington had agreed in 1978 to take the prisoners and their families. Now it was reneging. Yet when Cubans hijacked boats, they were greeted in Florida with great fanfare as heroes, thereby encouraging acts of violence. That's an absurd situation, Castro scolded the Americans. You must do something to discourage these people. You cannot leave us with the job if you yourself do nothing. He did not want to unleash a flood of migrants as in the past, but he would not sit still if Washington blocked legal migration while at the same time encouraging illegal departures. Either you take measures, he warned, or we should be free of any obligation to control those who want to leave illegally. It was a warning that Washington did not take seriously enough. The Havana conversation, like those in 1978, did not lead to any breakthrough. Both sides expressed their views on the issues, clarifying the scope of their disagreement. But on no issue did either side offer any real concessions, so the gulf between their positions remained unbridged. There was some marginal interest in what Castro was saying, Tarnoff recalled, but the Cuban relationship became hostage to the deteriorating relationship with the Soviet Union. After Afghanistan, Carter's foreign policy hardened into familiar Cold War patterns, and the idea of improving relations with Havana was simply submerged by larger geopolitical forces. In that scale of things, Brzezinski told the authors, the whole business of Castro seemed to me to be a piddling affair. In my job, it was a damn nuisance. Marielle in 1979-80, the Cuban economy suffered a serious recession. A third of the sugar crop and the entire tobacco crop were lost to disease. Swine flu decimated the pig population, producing shortages of pork, a staple in the Cuban diet. Nickel exports fell short of planning targets, and the adoption by many countries of the 200-mile commercial fishing limit banished the Cuban fleet from its traditional haunts. The resulting shortages of consumer goods coincided with an influx of Cuban-American visitors. During the 1978 dialogue with the Committee of 75, organized by Bernardo Benes, Castro had agreed to allow exiles to visit the island. In 1979, more than 100,000 Cuban-Americans did. Almost all of them, even those with modest incomes, brought gifts for friends and family, gifts that were lavish by Cuban standards. By bringing goods that were hard or impossible to come by in Cuba, the returning exiles were making an implicit statement that their decision to emigrate had been the right one. They had prospered, while those who stayed behind languished. The contrast between the prosperity of those who had left and the austerity endured by those who stayed was palpable. The government made a mistake allowing them to return, explained one Cuban woman. We could see they were well. Cuba's recession and the invidious comparison between living standards in Cuba and in Miami increased emigration pressure. Since the end of the freedom flights in 1973, 
The only Cubans who had been able to emigrate legally to the United States were those who met the same strict criteria as aspiring immigrants elsewhere. However, Cubans who made it to the United States illegally, by sailing across the Florida Strait, for example, were routinely granted permanent residence under the 1966 Cuban Adjustment Act. Beginning in late 1979, there was a surge in the number of small boats being stolen or hijacked in Cuba for the trip across the strait. As Castro complained to Tarnoff and Pastor, the perpetrators were welcomed in Miami as heroes. Not one was ever prosecuted, even when they resorted to violence. Fidel's complaint about the paradox of U.S. immigration policy was just one of several warnings preceding the migration crisis that unfolded over the summer of 1980. The first formal Cuban protest came several months earlier, in October 1979, when Wayne Smith was called to the foreign ministry over a boat hijacking. We aren't asking you to return the hijackers to Cuba, the Cuban official told Smith. We understand that wouldn't be politically feasible, and it isn't necessary anyway. What is necessary is that your government reaffirm its intention to uphold the law with respect to hijackings. That will help discourage what might become a very dangerous practice. In reporting to Washington, Smith recommended a strongly worded public statement affirming U.S. intentions to prosecute hijackers. He received no response. My follow-up cables also disappeared into the Washington void. Over the ensuing months, four more boat hijackings prompted Cuban diplomatic protests, and following each one, Smith cabled Washington urging action. Still, nothing happened. In February, after armed Cuban hijackers diverted a Liberian freighter to Florida and were released by U.S. authorities, Carlos Rafael Rodriguez issued an unambiguous warning. I hope, Smith, that you are emphasizing to your government the gravity with which mine views this situation. Our patience is running out. If your government wants people in small boats, we can give you more than you bargained for. A few weeks later, on March 8, 1980, Castro reiterated the warning publicly. They encourage the illegal departures from the country, the hijacking of boats, practically receiving those who hijack a vessel as heroes, Castro said of the U.S. government. We have protested and have warned them. If Washington continued to look the other way, we might also have to take our own measures. We once had to open the Camarioca port he reminded the United States. We hope we don't have to take such measures again. In Washington, there was no sense of urgency. The Castro regime may again resort to large-scale emigration to reduce discontent, the CIA's Cuba Analytics Center warned in late January, but the State Department's Bureau of Legal Affairs did not get around to acting on Smith's October 1979 cable until February 1980. As the number of hijackings mounted, however, the issue went to the White House, and the President endorsed Smith's recommendation. We should restrict these maritime hijackings by law, if possible, Carter wrote. Use public warnings and cooperate with Cuba. Even this presidential dictum did little to grease the wheels of the bureaucracy, however. Five weeks later, the State Department and Justice Department were still trading memos about what ought to be done. By then, it was too late. One way disaffected Cubans sought to emigrate in the spring of 1980 was by claiming political asylum at the embassies of other Latin American governments. 
In Havana, asylum seekers had to run the gauntlet of Cuban guards outside embassy gates. The early months of 1980 witnessed a rash of gate crashers, and the government's concerned refused to turn them over to the Cuban police. To Fidel Castro, the behavior of the embassies was exactly parallel to Washington's. The Latin American countries would not accept Cubans who sought to emigrate legally, but they encouraged violence by accepting anyone who broke into their embassy grounds by force. On April 1st, six Cubans hijacked a bus and crashed through the gates of the Peruvian embassy. Cuban guards fired on the bus, and one of them was killed in the crossfire. When we told the commandante of the policeman's death, his face turned deep red. One of Castro's aides told Wayne Smith, I have never seen him so angry. On Fidel's orders, the police tore down the barriers and guard posts outside the Peruvian embassy, leaving the grounds unguarded. We cannot give protection to embassies that do not cooperate with that protection, explained a front-page editorial in Granma. The ploy, according to Cuban officials, was to make Peru an object lesson. They expected several hundred migrants to seek refuge at the embassy, creating a logistical nightmare for the staff and making other embassies think twice about accepting future gate crashers. But Castro had miscalculated. Within 72 hours, more than 10,000 people poured into the Peruvian embassy grounds, so many that there was literally no room for people to lie down to sleep. There are people in the branches of the trees, on top of the destroyed iron grating, and even on the roof of the embassy, a Peruvian official said, describing the scene. The humanitarian crisis was so acute the Cuban government had no choice but to provide food, water, and sanitation for the crowd and to promise them safe passage off the island if they would just go home. Yet at the same time, Granma denounced the asylum seekers as delinquents, lumpen proletarians, antisocial and parasitic elements. Most of the refugees at the embassy were afraid to leave, and many of those who did were confronted at home by angry neighbors who denounced them as traitors and, in some cases, assaulted them. For the Cuban government, the entire episode was a huge embarrassment that it wanted to bring to a quick conclusion. Cuba initially agreed for the refugees to be flown to a reception center in Costa Rica, from which they would continue on to various destinations. This might have resolved the problem, but President Carter and Costa Rican President Rodrigo Carrazzo could not resist the temptation to exploit Castro's predicament. Carrazzo made it a point to greet the Cuban refugees as they disembarked in Costa Rica, drawing media attention to their stories of misery. Cuban Vice Minister of Foreign Relations Ricardo Alarcón confronted Costa Rican Foreign Minister Carlos Aguilar about the media circus, demanding, Why do you have to make such a spectacle out of this? At a White House reception on April 9th, Carter described Cuba as a Soviet puppet, adding, we see the hunger of many people on that island to escape political deprivation of freedom and also economic adversity. Our heart goes out to the almost 10,000 freedom-loving Cubans who entered a temporarily opened gate at the Peruvian embassy. The following day, Granma denounced the speech and Carter personally, calling him an insolent person who had reached the peak of shamelessness by expressing his sympathy for the criminals at the embassy. On April 18th, Castro suspended the refugee flights to Costa Rica. On April 21st, an editorial in Granma invited Cuban Americans to come pick up refugees from the Peruvian embassy or their relatives 
and two days later the paper directed would-be emigrants to congregate at the port of Mariel, where U.S. vessels could come get them. The State Department tried to deter Cuban-Americans from sailing south by warning that anyone aiding illegal immigration would be committing a felony. The warning had no impact. What I didn't realize, and what no one seemed to realize, was that events were rapidly moving out of our control, wrote Victor H. Palmieri, the State Department Coordinator for Refugee Affairs. Miami Cubans who had never steered a boat before were puttering out to sea while the U.S. Coast Guard and customs officials waved them on. The flotilla was forming. The horse was leaving the barn. In an uncanny act of political jiu-jitsu, Fidel Castro turned Cuba's embarrassment over how many of its citizens wanted to leave into Washington's embarrassment over its inability to control its own coast. By the end of April, over a thousand boats were anchored in Mariel Harbor, taking on refugees as fast as Cuban officials could process them. After a four-hour meeting on April 23rd, Carter's domestic policy staff settled on a two-pronged policy of stepping up efforts to deter boats from going to Mariel by threatening the operators with fines and possible imprisonment while continuing to welcome into the United States the refugees they brought back. Palmieri dubbed this policy, Get Tough But Remain Compassionate, neatly capturing U.S. ambivalence. A few days later, the tension between Havana and Washington escalated. On May 2nd, a crowd of about 800 ex-political prisoners gathered in front of the U.S. Interests section on Havana's seaside boulevard, the Malecon, to apply for visas to enter the United States. As they waited, dozens of government supporters armed with bats, bricks, and chains converged on the building and attacked the ex-prisoners. During the ensuing riot, some 400 Cubans took refuge inside the interests section. Despite Cuban government promises that they would not be arrested, most refused to leave. For the next several days, Wayne Smith negotiated with the Cuban foreign ministry, urging it to simply allow the United States to fly the ex-prisoners out of Cuba. Since the Cuban government had already given them exit visas and wanted to be rid of them, it was an easy solution to a problem both governments claimed to want resolved. The Cubans, however, refused, arguing that if they allowed the ex-prisoners to leave, it would encourage others to break into diplomatic missions. Privately, Cuban officials acknowledged that they wanted to use the Mariel boat lift and the ex-prisoners as leverage to force Washington to negotiate on broader issues. If we ever get back to negotiating anything, Alarcón told Smith, it will have to be based on a step-by-step -step process based on reciprocity. We aren't going to sit down with you to talk about stopping the Mariel operation and then have that be the end of it. Now dubbed the Freedom Flotilla, the boat lift continued unabated. On May 14th, Carter ordered the Coast Guard to seize boats ferrying Cubans to Florida illegally. This directive would eventually slow the exodus, but it could not stop the boats already anchored at Mariel, more than a thousand of them, from returning laden with refugees. When Carter announced the tough new enforcement measures, 40,000 Cubans had been brought to South Florida. Before the boat lift finally ended, 80,000 more would follow. Crisis Dialogue If Washington could not shut off the flow of refugees, the only option was to convince Castro to shut it off from the Cuban side. After Cuba rejected a Costa Rican proposal for multilateral talks aimed at ending the refugee crisis, Carter approved a bilateral approach. 
Wayne Smith conveyed the proposal to the Cubans, who requested a full-scale negotiation led by Carter's new Secretary of State, Edmund S. Muskie. Vance had resigned on April 28th in the wake of the failed mission to rescue the Iranian hostages. Washington countered by suggesting a new round of mid-level talks, with Tarnoff and Pastor traveling once again to Havana. The Cubans agreed. If we were going to have any chance of getting the sea lift closed down, Wayne Smith recalled, we would have to present the negotiations as just the start of a dialogue that would carry us, issue by issue, to the discussion of all the other problems between us. The negotiating position Tarnoff prepared struck just the right note, Smith thought. It demanded an end to the exodus, but at the same time offered to resume discussions on the full range of bilateral issues. Tarnoff did not have the last word, however. The NSC refused to agree to a broad dialogue, insisting that the talks be restricted to the boat lift and the Cubans trapped in the interests section. We had some other problems then, Afghanistan and Iran, Brzezinski said, looking back at the decision. So it was not the time for what might appear to be one-sided concessions. When Tarnoff and Pastor arrived in Havana with their restrictive instructions, Smith demanded to know what had happened to the earlier plan. We thought the other approach was too soft, Pastor explained. If this is the best you could come up with, you should have stayed home, Smith answered. This will be a wasted trip. That afternoon, Tarnoff, Pastor, and Smith met with Padron, Alarcon, and Arbesu at a government protocol house. Tarnoff opened the meeting, trying to put the best face possible on the U.S. position. He reiterated Washington's desire to eventually normalize relations, and that steps leading to such normalization not be delayed indefinitely. But the reason Washington had requested a new round of talks was its pressing concern over the migration crisis. If we cannot resolve the manageable problems which arise, such as those of immigration and the interests section, the chances of a general improvement are even more remote. He went on to describe in detail the U.S. positions on Marielle, the Cubans in the interests section, and maritime hijacking. When Tarnoff concluded, Padron looked quizzically at the U.S. team. Is that it? he asked. Is that all? Yes, that's our position, Tarnoff replied. I must tell you frankly that our feeling is one of dissatisfaction and frustration that the U.S. side is beginning these exploratory talks by dealing only with those issues which it labels pressing and urgent, Padron answered. Unfortunately, once again, the U.S. deals only with those matters which are in its own interests, ignoring those issues which are the essence of the problems between us. The Cuban side, Padron made clear, was not disposed to even discuss immigration unless the U.S. side was willing to be more forthcoming about broader issues like the embargo. All Tarnoff could do was repeat the position U.S. negotiators had been articulating since David Aaron and Bob Gates first sat down with Padron at the Lakote Basque two years earlier. A general improvement in relations depended on Cuba responding to U.S. concerns about its relationship with the Soviet Union and its role in Africa, Central America, and the Caribbean. As usual, the Cubans flatly rejected the idea that they should radically revise their entire foreign policy just to improve relations with the United States. Washington's presumption that it could stand as the judge and arbiter of Cuba's relations with others was one-sided, unconstructive, and unacceptable, Padron declared. The dialogue went downhill from there. 
During a break, Pastor took Arbesu aside. What I am about to tell you is personal. I am not representing the U.S. government, but just giving you the perspective of an American citizen. Pastor began. Your behavior on this issue is doing more to strengthen Ronald Reagan's candidacy for president than anything you could possibly do. Arbesu didn't respond, but he understood the point and communicated it to Fidel. Eventually, Castro would come to the same conclusion, but not yet. Tensions rose as the two sides sparred with one another. As the evening wore on toward midnight, the negotiators, most of whom had been meeting on and off for two years, shifted from calling one another by their first names to using surnames. I think we are going around in circles, Tarnoff said in frustration. My impression of the results of this round of talks is one of great disappointment. I think we have exhausted the usefulness of this round. Tarnoff and Pastor flew back to Washington the next day, empty-handed. The Cuban side was unusually polemical, they reported to Brzezinski and Muskie. It became clear to us that although these confidential talks have proven useful in helping us to understand Cuba's views on a wide range of issues, we have clearly reached a dead end in terms of resolving problems. This is the end of the CD. The audiobook continues on the next CD. Blue Fire In early July, Cuba and the United States came to the brink of open conflict. A large freighter, the Blue Fire, capable of holding some 3,000 people, anchored at Mariel and began taking on passengers. If freighters, rather than small pleasure boats, began transporting Cuban refugees, the scale of the migration crisis would escalate dramatically. U.S. officials quickly decided that the Blue Fire had to be stopped, by military force if necessary. Naval forces were assembled and prepositioned to blockade the port of Mariel. We almost went to war over the Blue Fire, Robert Pastor recalled. Secretary of State Muskie insisted on trying to resolve the problem diplomatically before taking military action. Pastor suggested they approach Carlos Rafael Rodriguez, who had impressed him during the Havana negotiations as serious and level-headed. He was smart, he was on top of issues, he was not full of a lot of rhetoric. We immediately recognized that he was a critical person. I remembered that when we got into the Blue Fire crisis. On July 3rd, Wayne Smith delivered a message from Muskie to Rodriguez, warning that the United States had the gravest concerns about the Blue Fire. But the Demarche held a carrot as well as a stick. Washington remained open to the possibility of improving relations, Muskie's note said, but if the Blue Fire sailed, that opportunity would be foreclosed. Reading the note, Rodriguez remarked that it had some barbs, but was basically constructive. He would have to consult with Fidel about the ship, but he could assure Muskie, in the strictest confidence, that Castro had made a decision to do nothing that could be construed as deliberately provocative leading up to the U.S. elections. Loading the blue fire would definitely be construed in the United States as provocative, Smith warned. You can tell the secretary I will see what I can do, Rodriguez replied. Our relations are bad enough as it is, without adding more complications. What we need is a truce, not escalation. While the Cubans deliberated about how to respond to Muskie's message, another SR-71 overflew Havana. Cubans will doubtless be angered over flight, which resulted in loud sonic boom almost knocking members USINT from their chairs, Smith angrily cabled Washington. 
Would it not have been advisable to hold off on overflight at least until we heard what Carlos Rafael Rodriguez had to say? As Smith wrote later, to send me in to ask the Cubans not to load the blue fire, in effect to ask for a concession, and at the same time to do something that was bound to provoke them, struck me as utterly stupid. When Smith met with Rodriguez that evening, the vice president was more mystified than angry. I don't understand what your government intended, he began. The blue fire isn't going to load, but I don't mind telling you that the overflight today almost ruined everything. A few people in the meeting this afternoon wanted to retaliate by loading not only the blue fire, but several other vessels as well. Fortunately, cooler heads prevailed, this time. As summer turned toward fall, the socially disruptive consequences of the boat lift began to weigh more heavily on Cuban officials. Tens of thousands of citizens still hoped to leave, and social tensions between would-be emigrants and the revolution's loyal supporters were tearing apart local communities. And gradually, Castro's anger at Jimmy Carter was supplanted by his concern that the boat lift was hurting Carter politically, making the election of Ronald Reagan more likely. We felt we let it go on too long, Carlos Rafael Rodriguez admitted, looking back. The boat lift gave Carter a huge political black eye. His inability to control the southern border, following the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan and the seizure of American hostages in Iran, reinforced the public's perception that the president was weak, incapable of defending the interests of the United States abroad. Carter couldn't get the Russians to move out of Cuba, quipped Republican nominee Ronald Reagan, referring to the Soviet combat brigade, so he's moving out the Cubans. In late August, José Luis Padrón contacted Peter Tarnoff using the communications back channel they had established when the dialogue first began in 1978. He invited Tarnoff to return to Havana to reopen the dialogue with an eye toward ending the migration crisis. Tarnoff asked Muskie if he could make the trip alone, and Muskie backed the idea, arguing to the president that the chances of success would be greater if the NSC staff was not involved. Brzezinski did not fight it. By then I frankly didn't have much interest in this, he recalled. I just didn't think it was leading anywhere, and I had other fish to fry. Tarnoff traveled to Havana in early September, with broader instructions than he and Pastor had carried three months before. Unlike June, when Castro had refused to meet with the U.S. delegation, he saw Tarnoff and Smith right away. He was clearly willing to be helpful, Tarnoff recalled. I was instructed to tell him that if the president was re-elected, he would do his best to have an expanded relationship that would address a broad range of issues. Castro agreed immediately to end the boat lift, but said he was doing so unconditionally, without expecting any quid pro quo and without demanding any promise of broader talks. He also told Smith that he wanted to resolve the problem of the Cubans at the interests section and gave his personal guarantee that they would be allowed to leave for the United States immediately. Upon Tarnoff's return, Carter insisted on a personal briefing. He was convinced that an end to the boat lift would boost his electoral prospects in Florida and Arkansas, where some of the refugees were being housed, a politically unpopular move that cost Governor Bill Clinton re-election and shaped his own views about Cuba. Tarnoff reported very favorably results of his discussions with Castro. Carter wrote in his diary. Not only would Fidel close Marielle, but he also refused to accept anything in return, and made it clear there was no quid pro quo involved. 
Secretary of State Muskie attended the Oval Office briefing, but was especially anxious to get from Tarnoff a package of cigars that Fidel Castro had sent him as a gift. Muskie opened the elaborate package as soon as the Oval Office meeting adjourned. But he was disappointed when, under all the wrapping, it held just one hundred cigars. Tarnoff recalled, the legal limit for what could be brought into the United States. Missed Opportunities During the critical first year of his presidency, Jimmy Carter seemed uncertain about what he wanted from better relations with Cuba and how great an impediment Cuba's role in Africa posed. He believed in principle that the United States should have normal diplomatic relations with adversaries whenever possible, yet he also shared Brzezinski's hope that normal relations might wean Cuba from the Soviets. When Cuban troops were drawing down in Angola, they seemed to pose a fleeting problem, but when withdrawals stopped in the spring of 1977, the Angola problem loomed larger. When Cuba deployed troops to Ethiopia a few months later, followed by Carter and Castro's public shouting match over Shaba II, all forward momentum on normalization was lost. I think Castro saw my confrontation with him both publicly and privately on Ethiopia as a turning point, Carter said, reflecting back on that critical moment. I think he kind of gave up, as did I, on the immediate prospect of full normal relations. So both of us kind of backed away from that. In Havana, the Cubans found Washington's stance confusing. On the one hand, Carter was clearly less hostile than any previous U.S. president and demonstrated his sincerity by taking positive initiatives in 1977. Yet Brzezinski seemed intent on stoking the coals of hostility. By the end of the year, Castro was convinced that normalization was in all likelihood stalled until Carter's second term. Nevertheless, the Cubans did not give up hope. The release of their thousands of political prisoners and the secret dialogue with Washington gave both sides a chance to refine their understanding of the issues separating them and to probe for points of agreement. But the talks produced little in the way of real progress. The informal exchanges that Carlos Rafael Rodriguez characterized as talking about the conditions for talking never matured into formal negotiations. Throughout the secret dialogue, Castro stood on principle. As much as he wanted normal relations with Washington, he was not prepared to sacrifice his global aspirations to achieve it, and he bristled at Washington's expectation that he should have to. Washington would never countenance a Cuban demand that it withdraw troops from Europe as a condition of establishing normal bilateral relations, so why should the United States expect Cuba to withdraw from Africa? While this may have been a defensible position in principle, it ignored the real politic of Cuba's role in the global rivalry between the superpowers. Cuban actions in Africa, undertaken in concert with the Soviets and subsidized by them, had real consequences for U.S. interests. Vance and Brzezinski might disagree over how serious a threat such actions posed and what remedy to prescribe, but no U.S. policymaker could ignore them. Jimmy Carter aspired to be the first post-Cold War president in an era when the Cold War was not quite over. The fragile structure of détente erected by Kissinger buckled under the weight of superpower competition in the Third World, especially Africa. With his foreign policy team divided, Carter oscillated between his hopes for world peace and his fears of Soviet aggression. Vance urged the president to look beyond the inordinate fear of communism, toward a brighter post-Cold War future. Brzezinski kept reminding him, 
the Cold War was not yet over. Looking back, Carter felt he missed an opportunity to cut the Gordian knot of U.S.-Cuban hostility. It may be that we overemphasized the need for Cuba to make a dramatic break with the Soviet Union in Ethiopia, Carter reflected. I think in retrospect, knowing what I know since I left the White House, I should have gone ahead and been more flexible in dealing with Cuba and established full diplomatic relations. Defeated for re-election by Ronald Reagan, Carter had no second term and no second chance to normalize relations. 6. Reagan and Bush Diplomatic Necessity We are two neighbors who have had abominable relations, and unlike people, we aren't able to move away. Ricardo Alarcón, Vice Minister of Foreign Relations You just give me the word, Secretary of State Alexander M. Haig told President Ronald Reagan, and I'll turn that fucking island into a parking lot. In March 1981, just a few weeks after inauguration, Reagan's National Security Council began debating how to respond to the escalating civil war in El Salvador. Haig advocated going to the source, telling his stunned colleagues they would have to invade Cuba and put an end to the Castro regime. The president seemed tempted, but to Haig's chagrin, no one else was eager to begin the new administration with a foreign war. Ronald Reagan entered the Oval Office in 1981 considering whether to invade Cuba, but by the time he left eight years later, his administration had negotiated major agreements on migration and southern Africa. The strange odyssey of Reagan's Cuba policy resulted not from a change of heart, but from the recognition that the United States and Cuba had mutual interests that could only be advanced by cooperation, even in the midst of ongoing hostility. By the time Reagan's successor, George H. W. Bush, took office, however, the crisis of European communism had changed the international landscape dramatically. The collapse of the Soviet Union left Cuba vulnerable, reviving dreams in Washington that had lain dormant since the 1960s, dreams of rolling back the Cuban Revolution. Central America, in search of a diplomatic firebreak. At the outset, Reagan was determined to restore America's global stature by taking the offensive in the Cold War. Urged on by Haig, Reagan declared Central America the place to draw the line against the expansion of Soviet influence in the Third World. He blamed the Soviets, acting through their proxy Cuba, for the revolutionary turmoil engulfing Nicaragua, El Salvador, and Guatemala. During the campaign, Reagan called repeatedly for a blockade of Cuba in retaliation for the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. Now, however, he was dissuaded from endorsing Haig's invasion proposal by other senior officials who pointed out that the large and well-trained Cuban army could turn the country into another Vietnam. Still, the decision left Reagan frustrated. Intelligence reports say Castro is very worried about me, he wrote in his diary. I'm very worried that we can't come up with something to justify his worrying. The Cubans were worried. To avert a U.S. military attack, Havana pursued a two-track policy of strengthening its armed forces while trying to build a diplomatic firebreak against direct U.S. intervention. On the military front, Havana hoped to deter an attack by making certain that the direct cost and the risk of confrontation with the Soviet Union would be so high that policymakers in Washington would recoil at the price. On the diplomatic front, 
Cuba sought to defuse regional tension by supporting peace initiatives by Mexico, Venezuela, and others. Fidel Castro advised the Sandinista government in Nicaragua to be flexible in negotiations with Washington and urged the guerrillas in El Salvador to accept a negotiated end to the civil war. Havana also approached Washington directly. The first diplomatic signal came in February 1981. The Cubans reduced their arms shipments to the Salvadoran rebels and told Wayne Smith, chief of the U.S. Interests Section, that they wanted to contribute to a political solution to the conflict. They proposed bilateral discussions toward that end. Smith passed the message to Washington and heard nothing in reply. After a few weeks, he telephoned the State Department's coordinator for Cuban affairs, Miles Frechette. Miles replied that no one was interested in that sort of approach. He advised me to stop sending such recommendations. Meanwhile, the Cubans were sending the same message through private channels. In February 1981, columnist Jack Anderson set up a meeting between Bernardo Benes, interlocutor during the Carter administration, and Roger Fontaine, Reagan's new National Security Council director for Latin America. The Cubans, Benes said, were interested in a high-level dialogue. When Haig found out about Fontaine's meeting, he was livid. We had spent three weeks putting fear into the hearts of the Cubans, he complained. This diversion undermined the whole effort. Fontaine never followed up with Benes. Cuba also sent signals through Latin American heads of state. In July 1981, President José López Portillo of Mexico offered to mediate between Havana and Washington. Reagan's cabinet debated the offer, but decided to test the Cubans first. Haig sent a message to Castro through Mexican Foreign Minister Jorge Castaneda Sr. asking Havana to take back the excludables, Cuban criminals who had come over on the 1980 Mariel boat lift. Castro told López Portillo that Cuba was willing to discuss the excludables and any other issue. Haig resisted talks as anathema to his strategy of raising Castro's level of anxiety. There could be no talk about normalization, no relief of the pressure, no conversations on any subject except the return to Havana of the Cuban criminals and the termination of Cuban interventionism, Haig wrote in his memoirs. By the fall of 1981, the deteriorating military situation in El Salvador had once again pushed Central America to the top of Reagan's agenda. Haig used the occasion to renew his advocacy for going to the source. He convinced the Pentagon to draw up plans for a range of military actions, including a full blockade of Cuba and a joint U.S.-Latin American invasion of the island, an old option Haig himself had suggested back in 1963 when, as a young lieutenant colonel, he served on a Pentagon task force on Cuba. The Pentagon's final report outlined a series of escalating sanctions and threats designed both to punish Castro and to frighten him into a less activist foreign policy. In early September, the administration tightened visa restrictions on Cuban officials traveling to the United States and announced plans to establish Radio Marti, a propaganda radio station modeled on Radio Free Europe and named after José Marti, the father of Cuban independence. Measures were also taken to tighten the economic embargo. Wayne Smith was appalled by the direction of U.S. policy. A 20-year veteran of the Foreign Service, Smith had first served in Cuba during the late 1950s. He had seen it all, the insurrection against Batista, 
the deterioration of Washington's relations with the brash new revolutionary government, the Bay of Pigs, the Missile Crisis, and the CIA's secret war. By common agreement, Wayne Smith was the U.S. government's preeminent expert on Cuba. He knew Fidel Castro well enough to realize that threats would not work. Short of a direct military attack, there was nothing Washington could do that had not already been tried. No matter to what levels we escalate tensions and uncertainty, the Cubans will not, as a result of our threats, moderate their behavior. Smith warned Reagan's new Assistant Secretary of State for Inter-American Affairs, Thomas O. Enders. Smith was ignored. Knowledgeable though he might be, Smith had been sent to Havana by Jimmy Carter, and he favored improving relations with Cuba. In the Reagan administration, Smith was regarded as soft on Castro. On October 22, 1981, the Mexican ambassador in Havana called on Smith to recount a conversation in which Castro affirmed Cuba's support for a negotiated settlement in El Salvador. If a ceasefire could be arranged that would assure the security of the guerrillas and their civilian supporters, and if fair elections could be assured, the war could be ended. Just to be sure the message had been received, Vice Minister of Foreign Affairs Ricardo Alarcón visited Smith the same day to repeat it. Smith sent word to Washington, but again received no response. At the North-South Summit held at the Mexican resort of Cancun in October 1981, President López Portillo seized the opportunity to instigate a confidential U.S.-Cuban dialogue. Cuba had been involved in the preparatory meetings for the summit, and Mexican officials had hoped the gathering of world leaders might include a discreet meeting between Castro and Reagan. But according to Mexican diplomat Andres Rosenthal, U.S. officials balked when they learned Castro was scheduled to attend. If Fidel came, Reagan wouldn't, Rosenthal recalled. López Portillo was forced to call Castro and disinvite him. Castro understood immediately, Rosenthal remembers, and graciously agreed not to make it an issue. Instead, López Portillo invited the Cuban leader to a private pre-summit meeting on the island of Cozumel. There, the two talked about a potential U.S.-Cuban dialogue. Castro affirmed that he was willing to discuss all outstanding issues with Washington. At the conclusion of the Cancun summit, during the limousine ride to the airport, López Portillo and Castaneda appealed directly to Reagan to open a dialogue with Havana. López Portillo asked Reagan to return Mexico's favor of disinviting Castro to Cancun by authorizing a U.S. emissary to meet secretly with Cuba's vice president, Carlos Rafael Rodriguez. Reagan readily agreed and directed Haig to undertake the mission. Haig traveled to Mexico City in late November for his secret meeting with Rodriguez, the highest-level diplomatic meeting between the two countries since 1959. An unmarked car whisked Haig from the U.S. Embassy to Castaneda's spacious suburban home. The Mexican foreign minister introduced the two protagonists to each other in his library and then left them to talk privately. Haig began with a litany of U.S. complaints against Cuba, from its role in Africa to its support for revolutionaries in Central America. We have come to a crossroads which, even by a most modest appraisal, may be described as dangerous, he warned. Cuba's role in Nicaragua and El Salvador was simply unacceptable intervention and a threat to our vital interests. If Cuba would halt such behavior and turn away from the Soviet Union, Washington would normalize relations. If not, the consequences for Cuba would be dire.
Rodriguez replied that Cuba had every right as a sovereign country to assist Nicaragua as it had assisted Angola and Ethiopia. The United States, he reminded Haig, claimed the right to support Jonas Savimbi's guerrilla war in Angola. Frankly speaking, we do not understand why the United States, merely because it happens to be, at the present time, one of the most powerful states, can have a right which we, being a small country, do not have. Nevertheless, he reaffirmed Cuba's support for a negotiated settlement in El Salvador. Having normal relations with the United States would be good for Cuba, Rodriguez agreed, but Cubans would not sacrifice our primary principles to win Washington's favor. By these, he meant Cuba's sovereignty, its friendship with the Soviet Union, and its solidarity with other Third World nations. Cuba wanted to avoid a confrontation with Washington, but neither are we afraid of a confrontation. Haig implored and threatened. Rodriguez remained stoic. It was not a conversation intended to reach conclusions, Rodriguez said later, although we each presented our point of view very clearly. They agreed only that the dialogue should continue. Haig suggested that roving Ambassador Vernon Walters travel to Havana for the next round of talks, but he warned that Washington was not interested in talks like those conducted during the Carter administration. They were nothing but a series of delaying tactics in order to prevent any progress, and nothing was achieved by that, not a thing, Haig said. If you are prepared to speak seriously, we are also prepared. But we are in need of a prepared context for discussions and some kind of sign from your side that results will be achieved. Washington wanted actions, not words. We are prepared to search for a solution, Rodriguez affirmed. Both the Mexicans and the Cubans believed a positive step had been taken. We had accomplished what we wanted to get them together, recalled Rosenthal. Face to face, the Cubans found Haig to be far more level-headed, respectful, and reasonable than his vitriolic Cold War rhetoric had led them to expect. In Rodriguez's opinion, shared later with Mexican officials, Haig was neither crazy nor stupid, but a reasonably intelligent, experienced person with whom conversation was possible. Haig had emphasized the need to make a supreme effort to settle issues through La Via Pacifica, the peaceful road. Haig, on the other hand, came away from the meeting convinced that U.S. pressure was working. The Cubans were very anxious about Washington taking military action against them, he concluded, but they were still not willing to make any significant concessions. Haig missed the point of what Rodriguez said on several key issues. Cuba was willing to support a political settlement in El Salvador based on free elections, nominally the same outcome Washington itself was seeking. To be sure, the process for putting a ceasefire in place, assuring security for all, and actually conducting a free election would have been devilishly difficult, involving more actors than just Havana and Washington. But the two positions were close enough to merit exploration. In Africa, Rodriguez said, Cuba was willing to withdraw its troops from Angola as part of a negotiated settlement linked to Namibian independence. This, too, was consistent with Reagan's policy. Here, too, the details would prove so complex that it would take years to sort them out, but Reagan's Assistant Secretary of State for Africa, Chester A. Crocker, would eventually prove it could be done, and the Cubans, once brought into the process, would play a constructive role. Within a month of Haig's meeting with Rodriguez, the Cubans provided the tangible sign of their seriousness that Haig had demanded. 
Although Rodriguez stoutly defended Cuba's right to aid Nicaragua in the face of Haig's insistence that such aid was unacceptable, the signal Castro chose to send Washington was to halt arms shipments to the Sandinistas. What I can say is that all shipments of military equipment from Cuba to Nicaragua have been suspended, and that we hope this improves the atmosphere for negotiations. Carlos Martinez Salsamendi, Rodriguez's chief foreign policy adviser, informed Wayne Smith in December. We hope that this can lead to something positive. The Cubans were ready to deal on issues of real concern to Washington. They would not desert their Soviet friends in exchange for trade with the United States, but on the issues that had brought the two countries to the brink of war, the Cubans were signaling their willingness to compromise. Washington never responded to Salsamendi's signal, other than to continue its harsh anti-Cuban rhetoric. The bottom line, Wayne Smith concluded, was that we weren't interested in talks and we weren't going to accept this as a gesture. Everything is negotiable. Once again, it was the Mexicans who got the diplomatic ball rolling. In a speech on February 22, 1982, President López Portillo offered a peace initiative to loosen the three knots of tension in Central America, El Salvador, Nicaragua, and relations between the United States and Cuba. He repeated the warning, first given to Hague in November, that direct U.S. intervention would be a gigantic historical error, provoking a continental convulsion of anti-Americanism. The Nicaraguans and the Cubans accepted Mexico's proposal immediately. This posed a political problem for Reagan. If the White House dismissed the Mexican initiative too quickly, it would appear uninterested in diplomacy. Yet if Washington entered into negotiations, it would blunt Reagan's effort to forcefully draw the line against communism in Central America. We were cool to the initiative from the beginning, explained one U.S. official, but we were effectively ambushed by Congress and public opinion. We had to agree to negotiate or appear unreasonable. There was little likelihood, therefore, that anything positive would come of Ambassador Vernon Walters' trip to Cuba. On March 1st, Walters met with Reagan to receive instructions. He told me he wanted to find out from Castro whether we could stop the military aid he was sending to Nicaragua and the other leftist guerrillas in San Salvador, Walters recalled. Reagan directed him to tell the Cubans that they were headed inexorably toward confrontation, and that Washington was prepared to use force. But the president also told Walters to hold out an olive branch of possible rapprochement if Cuba was willing to meet four indispensable U.S. demands. A. Your organizational, training, and logistical support for military movements against organized governments in Central America and Colombia must end. B. Your security and military assistance to Nicaragua the advisers and the material, must be withdrawn. C. Cuban forces must be withdrawn from Angola, and D. You must take back the Cuban criminals unlawfully sent to the U.S., or we will be required to consider other means of returning them to Cuba. Walters himself was pessimistic about the prospects. I thought that Castro was a true believer in all that Marxist claptrap. Haig, too, expected that the Cubans would prove inflexible, but for the record, he wanted it known that we had tried. On the morning of March 4th, Walters flew by unmarked Learjet to Havana by way of Fort Lauderdale, so as not to attract attention in Miami. He was met at the airport by José Luis Padrón, and after lunch they went immediately to meet Fidel at the presidential palace. 
It was an odd reunion. In April 1959, during Fidel's two-week trip to the United States, Walters, then a young military officer and an accomplished linguist, had been assigned as Fidel's translator. Castro began the meeting by setting the parameters. I hope we can reach some sort of agreement that will benefit both our countries, he affirmed. But if you have come here to threaten me, you should know that I have been threatened by every president since Kennedy. Walters replied that President Reagan had sent him not to threaten Castro, but to see if there is any sort of arrangement that can be reached between us that will put an end to the confrontation that has lasted for a quarter of a century. Washington felt Cuba was endangering its vital interests in Central America by supporting the Salvadoran guerrillas and the Sandinistas, Walter explained, and under such circumstances, we are prepared to consider all options without exceptions. Without exceptions. Cuba would discuss any issue the United States wanted, Castro replied, but he refused in principle to agree to any preconditions. The matter of the Mariel excludables was one that the two sides could resolve. The Central American issues were more difficult because they involved other interested parties. Nevertheless, Castro pointed out, Cuba already had suspended military aid to both Nicaragua and the Salvadoran guerrillas and was willing to act constructively in support of López Portillo's plan for negotiations in El Salvador. Everything is negotiable, Fidel offered. But they didn't negotiate. On the basis of Haig's meeting with Rodriguez in Mexico, the Cubans expected Walters would come to Havana with an agenda of issues on which the two sides could begin discussions. Walters, however, was not empowered to actually negotiate. His instructions were to simply communicate Washington's position and report back on Castro's response. Walters repeated Haig's litany of complaints about Cuban behavior and told anecdotes about his colorful career as a translator. When Fidel tried to explain Cuba's policy, Walters interrupted to argue with him about Marxist philosophy. The discussions with Walters were very difficult, recalled Rodriguez. It was not a complete waste of time. We learned a lot of things about the life of Eisenhower, about de Gaulle, and other chiefs of state Walters knew, Rodriguez said wryly. But we went nowhere. Walters did not follow up by exploring either the terms under which the excludables might be returned or what the Cubans envisioned as next steps toward diplomatic solutions in Central America. Instead, he simply decided Castro was stalling in hopes of dragging out a dialogue to prevent military action. Nothing Castro had said at any time during my visit gave me the impression that he was really prepared to negotiate seriously with us, Walters concluded. After just one substantive session with Castro, Walters flew back to Washington and reported to President Reagan. Had Castro given any indication that he was willing to stop aiding Central American revolutionaries? Reagan asked. I heard nothing that could lead me to this conclusion, Walters replied. He hadn't listened. Walters went to Havana with a preconceived conviction that Castro's ideological commitment to communism foreclosed any prospect of compromise. When Castro offered compromise, it didn't register with Walters. Even Cuba's suspension of aid to the Sandinistas and the Salvadoran guerrillas was discounted as ephemeral. Wayne Smith believed the Walters visit was a charade aimed at giving the impression of a willingness to talk where, in fact, no such willingness existed. After waiting about a month, the Cubans made one last effort to jumpstart negotiations. 
Vice President Rodriguez told a visiting group of U.S. foreign policy specialists that Cuba wanted to talk to Washington about reducing tensions in Central America. The region had become the focal point of U.S.-Cuban conflict, pulling the two countries toward confrontation, Rodriguez said. We think that is the first thing to avoid. Cuba was willing to join the United States in exercising mutual restraint, but talks with U.S. officials had gone nowhere. We are convinced that an important part of U.S.-Cuban differences emerge from misunderstandings, Rodriguez complained, evidently frustrated that both Haig and Walters had failed to grasp the concessions Cuba offered or had chosen to ignore them. To see Fidel Castro as a bomb-thrower is unrealistic. Acknowledging that Cuba had provided material assistance to the Salvadoran guerrillas in 1980 and early 1981, Rodriguez insisted that arms shipments had stopped more than a year before and that even military aid to Nicaragua had been suspended. The United States has said that ending our aid to El Salvador is a prerequisite to normalization. We can affirm that for over a year all our solidarity with El Salvador has been political solidarity without any material element. Moreover, the guerrillas were seeking a progressive democratic system, not socialism, Rodriguez explained. If we understand this, many options for political solutions are possible. While Cuba could not and would not negotiate over the heads of its Central American allies, it pledged to abide by any agreement the Central Americans could contrive. Cuba will accept the solutions reached between the parties the vice president promised. Cuba will put an end to its solidarity with the guerrillas, but all sides must do the same. If this cleared the way for normalization of U.S.-Cuban relations, Rodriguez added, we would impose certain restrictions on the behavior of Cuba, if the United States would do likewise. Rodriguez suggested to the visitors that Havana and Washington should resume discussions about Central America, Africa, and outstanding bilateral issues. Life has created a need for us to begin discussions, he said philosophically. All through the Carter years, Cuba had asserted its right and duty to assist its ideological allies. When Washington complained about this international solidarity, Cuba bristled, insisting that its relations with others were none of Washington's business. Now, fearing that Cuba and the United States stood at the brink of open conflict, Havana was offering to take a step back acknowledging for the first time that Cuba's actions abroad did affect Washington's legitimate interests. If the breach in bilateral relations were healed, Cuba pledged to act with greater restraint in areas of concern to the United States, so long as Washington reciprocated. Perhaps the offer was merely a ploy to diffuse the danger of the moment, but it was a stunning concession nonetheless, one the Cubans had never made before. Shortly after the American delegation's visit, Rodriguez gave Wayne Smith the same message. We want a peaceful solution in Central America, Rodriguez insisted. We understand your security concerns and are willing to address them. If you are willing to meet us halfway and deal on the basis of mutual respect, there is no reason we cannot at long last begin to put aside the unproductive animosity between us. We are as weary of it as you are. Haig dismissed the overtures. The Cubans were simply trying to buy time for the Salvadoran guerrillas, he told the president. There is basically no give in the Cuban position. If the Cubans really want to accommodate our concerns, they will let us know privately. This is not such a signal. 
On April 19, 1982, the administration announced new sanctions to punish Cuba for increasing its support for violence in the hemisphere. It also reimposed restrictions on travel to Cuba that had been lifted by President Carter in 1977, closed down the only commercial air link between Miami and Havana, allowed a fishing agreement signed in the era of detente to lapse, and named Cuba to the official list of terrorist states. In an effort to impede Cuba's exports, the United States also warned its trade partners that they would have to certify that products sold in the United States contained no Cuban nickel. Over the next few months, the CIA prepared an intelligence assessment reviewing all the various Cuban offers to negotiate. It concluded that the Cubans were not serious. We believe that Cuba's repeated offers to negotiate on Central America are an effort to buy time and gain a propaganda advantage. The key finding read, They have not been accompanied by any signs of a willingness to make concessions on the key issue of Havana supplying arms to insurgents. Moreover, support for insurgents abroad was deeply rooted in the revolution's ideology, the report asserted, and on this, the Castro regime in 23 years has never demonstrated a readiness to compromise. And even if Cuba reduced its support for its Central American allies, that would represent no more than a temporary tactical shift. In conclusion, the report claimed, contacts with Cuba had produced no credible evidence that Havana is ready to offer any significant concessions either to bring peace in Central America or to defuse its antagonistic relationship with Washington. The CIA report echoed Haig's and Walter's conclusions from their meetings with Cuban officials, and it suffered from the same preconceptions. Rather than actually test the sincerity of Castro's offer to restrain his actions in Central America, the CIA simply assumed that the hardline guerrilla veterans running Cuba were irrevocably dedicated to a policy of unyielding hostility toward the United States. Talking to them was pointless. Straining to explain why they continued to refuse to respond to Cuba's diplomatic feelers, U.S. officials began claiming that they had tried and failed. The Cubans only wanted to talk about bilateral issues, not their role in Central America, a senior official told the press. Our probing so far hasn't disclosed any change in that pattern, he said. There isn't any give. That, of course, was quite the opposite of what the Cubans were saying. The administration simply lied, Wayne Smith wrote later. It had no evidence that Cuban support for armed violence in Latin America was increasing, nor had the Cubans refused to discuss anything with us. Quite the contrary, the Cubans were willing to hold talks, and the U.S. was refusing. Smith was so disgusted at the mendacity of his own government that he turned down an ambassadorial appointment, it would have been his first, and retired from the Foreign Service. Grenada. Blood on the Runway. In March 1979, Maurice Bishop's socialist New Jewel movement seized power from the eccentric Prime Minister Eric Gehry on the tiny Caribbean island of Grenada, the world's foremost producer of nutmeg. By the time Ronald Reagan became president, Grenada was host to several hundred Cubans, doctors, teachers, technicians, and two dozen military advisors, and about 500 construction workers building a new airport that Washington worried could service Soviet bombers or Cuban troop transports on their way to Africa. It isn't nutmeg that's at stake in the Caribbean and Central America, President Reagan declared. It is the United States' national security. 
In October 1983, a faction within the New Jewel movement overthrew the government, murdering Bishop and several members of his cabinet. The United States seized upon the disorder as an excuse to invade the island under the pretext of rescuing U.S. students at the medical school there. As an armada of U.S. warships approached Grenada, Fidel Castro tried to head off the inevitable, sending Washington a message on October 22nd that Cubans in Grenada were reporting no civil disorder. The note proposed that the two governments maintain contact to avert violence. To the Cubans in Grenada, Castro sent orders not to initiate combat with U.S. forces in the event of an invasion, but to defend Cuban positions if attacked. Washington also wanted to avoid combat with the Cubans, but could not tell Havana until the invasion was underway, lest the defenders be forewarned. So Cuba's note went unanswered for three days, until U.S. troops went ashore on the morning of October 25th. At 3 a.m., John Furch, the new head of the U.S. Interests Section, received an urgent message from Washington to be delivered to the Cuban Foreign Ministry. It said, We're not attacking you. Tell your troops to lay down their arms. If they stop shooting, they can keep their arms. They can keep their flags, and they can leave with honor, Furch recalled. He delivered the message to Ricardo Alarcón at 8.30 a.m. Coincidentally, Furch also had a 10 a.m. appointment with José Luis Padrón and delivered the same message to him. Furch waited as Padrón relayed the message to Fidel Castro over the phone. When the call concluded, a shaken Padrón turned to Furch. The Comandante said, Tell Furch his information has been overtaken. The Cuban troops have fought to the last man defending the flag. Just ask him to find out when the Yankee invaders will send the bodies back. There was not much to say in response to that, Furch thought. Events had outrun diplomacy. Fighting between the invasion force and Cuban construction workers at the airport had begun an hour and a half before Furch delivered Washington's note. Faced with overwhelming U.S. firepower and armed only with light weapons, the Cubans nevertheless put up fierce resistance throughout the day. That evening, Furch delivered a second message in hopes of ending hostilities. Cuban personnel stationed in Grenada are not the target of U.S. troop action here, the message read. The United States is ready to cooperate with Cuban authorities in evacuation of its personnel to Cuba. The United States does not want to portray the withdrawal of Cuban armed personnel as a surrender. Finally, it regrets the armed clashes and considers that they have occurred due to confusion and accidents. A few hours later, Padron replied that Cuba would cooperate to find an honorable way to put an end to the battle. A ceasefire ended the fighting, and Cuba accepted an offer from Spain and Colombia to mediate repatriation of the 784 Cubans in Grenada, 24 of whom had been killed in the battle and 57 wounded. At a moment of real crisis, the U.S. Interests Section had proved an invaluable channel of communication between the two governments, facilitating a quick end to the fighting and preventing the conflict from escalating. Prisoners and Excludables the Migration Talks Although Central America dominated the agenda of U.S. relations with Cuba during Reagan's first term, migration issues were a persistent irritant. Cuba and the United States had been stalemated on migration ever since May 1980, when, in the midst of the Mariel boatlift, a government-inspired mob attacked prospective emigrants waiting for visas outside the U.S. interests section in Havana. 
the melee drove more than 400 people inside the old embassy building, halting normal operations, including the processing of visas for several thousand former prisoners released as a result of negotiations in 1978. Marielle also created another migration issue. Several thousand Marielle refugees were not eligible for admission to the United States because of serious criminal records. These excludables were detained pending their return to Cuba, but they could not be returned unless the Cuban government agreed to take them, notwithstanding Al Haig's proposal to put them on an old ship and anchor them in Havana Harbor. Shortly after the Marielle crisis ended, during the final months of the Carter administration, Wayne Smith had opened talks with the Cubans about returning the excludables. During two sessions in December 1980 and early January 1981, U.S. and Cuban negotiators hammered out the essential points of an agreement. Smith felt an accord could have been signed before Ronald Reagan's inauguration, but the Cubans delayed. Perhaps they calculated they could take some of the confrontational wind out of the new administration's sails by signing the migration agreement with Reagan rather than Carter. Smith thought. If so, they miscalculated. The new administration had no interest in talking with the Cubans about anything. In February 1981, when Cuba proposed a third round of migration talks, Washington rejected the overture. Nor would Washington allow Smith to resume processing visas for the former prisoners, much to his surprise. Here were anti-communist dissidents, people who had opposed Castro and languished in prison because of it, and the previous administration had already said we would bring them to the United States, Smith wrote later. Surely the Reagan administration would not welch on that promise, but it did. Despite persistent entreaties, Smith was denied permission to resume visa processing because Washington had decided to link the prisoners' visas to the return of the excludables. The Cuban government wanted the former prisoners out of the country, lest they become a focal point for opposition. Getting rid of the prisoners was the only incentive the Cubans had to accept the excludables. This linkage produced a catch-22 that left the former prisoners in limbo. Washington would process their visas only if Cuba agreed to take back the excludables, but return of the excludables could be achieved only by talking with the Cuban government, which Washington was unwilling to do. George Shultz broke this stalemate after he replaced Haig as Secretary of State in 1982. Schultz was more willing to negotiate with adversaries when it served U.S. interests. At the same time, pressure was building in Congress for the United States to keep its word to the former Cuban prisoners. If Congress forced the administration to accept the former prisoners unilaterally, the Cubans would no longer have any incentive to accept the excludables. The only solution, therefore, was to negotiate an agreement with the Cubans on both issues before the Congress decoupled them. On May 24, 1983, Assistant Secretary Enders summoned Ramon Sanchez Parodi, the head of the Cuban Interests Section in Washington, to the State Department and handed him a diplomatic note asking Cuba to accept return of the excludables and proposing migration talks. No visas for Cubans to emigrate to the United States would be processed until the excludables were returned, Enders explained. Sanchez Parodi asked if other issues would also be open for discussion. No, sir, Enders replied. The meeting lasted no more than fifteen minutes. A few weeks later, the Cubans responded cautiously but positively. As a gesture of good faith, they also answered a long-standing U.S. request for information about hijackers 
who had commandeered U.S. aircraft to Cuba, providing a list of the hijackers and their prison sentences. While the Cuban government certainly had an interest in normalizing migration to the United States, it also hoped successful talks on migration would lead to talks on other issues. The two governments exchanged another round of diplomatic notes, slowly moving toward talks, but their momentum was interrupted by the U.S. invasion of Grenada in October. As the U.S. presidential election campaign got underway in the spring of 1984, Washington again approached Cuba about starting migration talks, but the Cubans were wary. They had no interest in boosting Ronald Reagan's re-election prospects. They agreed to talk only after November. That stance changed, however, as a result of Democratic presidential candidate Jesse Jackson's trip to Cuba in June. At the State Department's request, Jackson agreed to ask for the release of Cuban political prisoners and to urge Castro to begin migration talks. In discussions with Jackson, Castro was noncommittal on most foreign policy issues. Jackson, after all, could deliver nothing with regard to U.S. policy. Nevertheless, Jackson won the release of 22 U.S. citizens jailed in Cuba, mostly for drug trafficking, and 26 Cuban political prisoners. Castro also agreed to resume migration talks before the November election if both Democrats and Republicans promised not to make the talks a campaign issue. Despite having conveyed the administration's proposal to Castro and gotten a positive response, Jackson was publicly excoriated upon his return. Secretary Schultz and President Reagan both refused to meet with him to hear a report of his conversations with Castro. Schultz called his trip scandalous and disruptive, while the president suggested it was a violation of the Logan Act, prohibiting private citizens from negotiating with foreign governments. We don't see any basic movement in the Cuban government's position, said State Department spokesman John Hughes ignoring the offer of migration talks. The administration was nevertheless quick to follow up privately on the opening Jackson created. Jackson was the catalyst, acknowledged Kenneth Skaug, state's coordinator for Cuban affairs. His trip unlocked the door to negotiations. Migration talks convened on July 12, 1984, with the U.S. delegation headed by the State Department's deputy legal advisor Michael Kozak and the Cuban delegation headed by Vice Foreign Minister Ricardo Alarcón. The two teams met at a midtown Manhattan hotel, where the U.S. delegation registered under assumed names so as not to draw attention. Kozak had been part of the U.S. team during the 1980-81 migration talks at the close of the Carter administration, so he was familiar with the issues. Not prone to ideological diatribes, Kozak looked for practical ways to resolve the differences between the two sides. He was very lawyer-like, Alarcón recalled. As the senior Cuban official most knowledgeable about the United States, Alarcón would be Castro's principal interlocutor with Washington for the next several decades. Skaug, a member of the U.S. team, remembered him as a seasoned diplomat and skillful negotiator. Alarcón opened by taking such a tough position that the U.S. diplomats thought they had traveled to New York for nothing. He insisted that Cuba would accept the return of only people held in detention continuously since the Mariel boat lift, not those who had subsequently committed crimes in the United States that made them deportable. He demanded that Washington agree to accept 30,000 Cuban immigrants annually and return anyone who left Cuba illegally. The Cuban position on the first day seemed unreasonable, even as an opening gambit, Skaug recalled. 
The second day was better. Kozak outlined the U.S. position, explaining that the return of the excludables was a necessary condition for the United States to accept large numbers of former prisoners and their families. The Cubans agreed to accept the expanded U.S. list of excludables for information purposes and proposed a second round of talks in Havana. The U.S. delegation countered by proposing New York as the site, and the Cubans agreed. The two delegations were establishing a rapport, Skaug thought. Between the two rounds of talks, both sides were busy sending signals. In Havana, Vice President Carlos Rafael Rodriguez told journalist Carl Migdale that Cuba was open to discussions with Washington on a whole range of issues, from migration to Central America. In his annual State of the Revolution address on July 26th, Castro reiterated his willingness to negotiate. Just as we are prepared to fight and die, he said, we are not afraid to participate in talks or discussions. He specifically mentioned both migration and Southern Africa. The Reagan administration responded with tantalizing signals of its own. In an interview, Secretary Schultz said that Washington would test Castro's sincerity in talks on migration, and if results were positive, perhaps other things can be worked out. A few weeks later, Kenneth Skaug gave a lengthy speech to the Americas Society in New York, in which he roundly criticized the Cuban regime, but nevertheless declared Washington's willingness to engage with Cuba on the basis of equality and mutual respect and to make concessions in order to resolve problems. He held out the possibility of dialogue on issues of mutual interest, including migration, radio interference, and perhaps other issues of this nature. U.S. officials sought to entice the Cubans into making concessions on migration in hopes that an agreement might be parlayed into broader talks. The Cubans, for their part, imagined that progress on migration would demonstrate their bona fides as responsible diplomatic partners and indefinitely delay the inauguration of propaganda broadcasts by Radio Marti, which had been approved but not yet gone on the air. They also hoped it would open the door to Cuban participation in the ongoing international discussions on southern Africa led by Washington. The second round of migration talks convened in New York in August, where the two sides reached agreement on the basic outline of an accord. The third round, held November 28th in the Perez de Cuellar suite at the U.N. Plaza Hotel, with its expansive view of the Manhattan skyline, proved decisive. After a week of discussion, several key issues remained unresolved. The Cubans, Alarcón announced, would have to return to Havana for consultations. Kozak, sensing that agreement was close and mindful that any number of external events might derail the talks before the two sides could reconvene, urged Alarcón to call Havana instead. Although it was well after midnight, Alarcón agreed to call Carlos Rafael Rodriguez. At 3 a.m., Alarcón awakened Kozak to tell him, Carlos Rafael agreed with you. The talks continued, and two days later, they reached agreement. After Reagan and Castro approved the final terms, the negotiators reconvened on December 13th at the Roosevelt Hotel to finalize the accord. But before signing, they spent a grueling 18 hours comparing the names of the excludables on the U.S. and Cuban lists. In the middle of this marathon, a U.S. official read out the name Nome Hodes, and the Cubans broke up laughing. Apparently, when asked his name by a U.S. immigration officer, one of the detainees replied, No me jodes, don't fuck with me, which the U.S. interrogator dutifully recorded. 
By the time the names had all been read, it was 1.40 a.m., and the state suite where the delegations were meeting was a mess, littered with overflowing ashtrays and empty coffee cups, smelling of stale cigar and cigarette smoke. Olga Miranda, the legal advisor on the Cuban delegation, and Stephanie von Reigersberg, the translator for the U.S. side, couldn't stand the idea that the final agreement would be signed amid such filth. Olga and I, the two of us, cleaned the place up, Van Rigersberg recalled, so that the agreement could be signed in a clean and decorous environment. As Kenneth Skaug later wrote, the migration agreement met virtually every major U.S. objective. The Cubans agreed to take back 2,746 excludables, and Washington agreed to treat Cuba like any other country with regard to immigration quotas, which meant that up to 20,000 Cubans annually might qualify. In addition, Washington agreed to accept the former political prisoners and their families, who had been waiting since 1980. It is important we do what we can to turn back on this road of tension, Alarcon told the press when the agreement was announced. And to the extent that we can demonstrate that agreement can be reached, at least partially, in at least some aspect, it is a way of affirming the validity of negotiations. We are two neighbors who have had abominable relations. And unlike people, we aren't able to move away. Castro praised Washington's positive and constructive approach and expressed his hope that the same spirit that characterized these talks might extend to discussions on other issues. That same night at a diplomatic reception, Castro called aside John Furch, the head of the U.S. Interests Section, to underscore the point. I want the American people to know that I have undertaken a commitment, Castro said about the accord. I am serious about this moral commitment. I want the American people to know. Furch, tell the American people. Furch was taken aback by the intensity of Castro's desire to convey his sincerity and amused at the idea that a U.S. diplomat in Havana could tell the American people anything. Castro echoed these sentiments in January 1985 in marathon meetings with the congressional delegation. During 37 hours of talks over six days, Castro told the legislators that Cuba would support a negotiated agreement in Central America to end the war in Nicaragua and a U.S.-brokered agreement in southern Africa leading to Namibian independence. Clearly Cuba is in a new mood for accommodation, said Congressman Jim Leach, Republican of Iowa, upon returning from Havana. Shortly after the congressional trip, Castro gave a five-hour interview to the Washington Post, touching many of the same themes. He praised the migration talks as constructive and positive, and expressed the hope that they would be followed by talks on other bilateral issues, such as Coast Guard cooperation, radio interference, hijacking, and fishing rights. He repeated Cuba's pledge to support peace accords in Central America and Southern Africa. I am speaking of a readiness to work, to strive in order to find solutions to the problem, he said. Washington did not share Cuba's enthusiasm for extending the dialogue into other areas. Just three days after the migration agreement was signed, Skaug gave another major address on Cuba at the Carnegie Endowment in Washington, emphasizing that the talks had been strictly limited to migration issues and that there was no basis for a broader improvement in bilateral relations. Such an improvement would require Cuba to meet two conditions, significantly reduce or sever its close ties to the Soviet Union 
and halt its support for revolutionary movements and Marxist governments in Africa and Latin America. However, Havana has made clear that its support for revolution, like the Soviet alliance, is not for negotiation. So there was nothing more to talk about. The administration's abrupt turnaround from earlier hints that progress on migration might lead to broader talks was intentional. The speech in Washington deliberately did not mention, as did the one in New York in June, other possible areas of agreement between us, Skaug acknowledged. Having pocketed Cuba's concessions on migration, senior officials in the Reagan administration had no desire to move quickly to new areas of negotiation with Cuba. The White House's public response to Castro's overtures was dismissive. We've heard this before, Reagan said. Early in my administration there were signals sent of this kind, and we took them up on it, and we have tried to have some meetings with them, and nothing came of it. Their words are never backed by deeds. In February 1985, Skaug traveled to Cuba to discuss implementation of the migration agreement and had a series of meetings with senior Cuban officials, including Alarcón, José Antonio Arbesu, José Luis Padrón, and Fidel himself, Castro's first meeting with the U.S. official since Vernon Walters' visit in 1982. The Cubans proposed additional bilateral talks and re-emphasized Castro's public declarations that they would be willing to cooperate on reaching negotiated settlements in Central America and Southern Africa. Skaug begged off any discussion of Central America or Africa on the grounds that he had no instructions. On bilateral issues, he was noncommittal. Upon returning to Washington, he reported to Secretary Schultz and National Security Advisor Robert C. McFarlane that the Cubans had shown no intention to alter Havana's basic approach to foreign policy. At the U.S. Interests section in Havana, John Furch responded more proactively to the Cuban signals. On his own initiative, he inquired whether the Cubans were serious about discussing a range of bilateral issues, and they replied affirmatively. When Furch reported this exchange to Washington, Skaug opposed pursuing it, but senior State Department officials were not quite so closed-minded. Undersecretary for Political Affairs Michael Armacost and Secretary Schultz both concluded that negotiations on a limited number of bilateral issues might be fruitful. Furch, who was due to rotate out as chief of mission, was instructed to suggest specific issues for discussion during his anticipated protocol departure meeting with Castro and was sent a memorandum to pass along to Padron. Washington proposed that the two sides hold a review session on the implementation of the Migration Accord in June, which would afford an opportunity to begin exploring other issues. Before either of these meetings could occur, however, the diplomatic apple cart was overturned by Radio Marti. Back to Square One Proposed originally by Reagan in 1981, Radio Marti had encountered significant congressional opposition for fear that Cuba would retaliate with high-powered radio transmissions of its own, causing widespread interference with U.S. commercial stations. We are going to broadcast back, Castro promised. I think the Americans are going to be listening to a lot of Cuban music. Concerns about Cuban broadcasts delayed legislation for Radio Marti until late 1983, and the launch was delayed further while the administration tried to craft a response to the anticipated Cuban reaction. We're ready to go with Radio Marti, Reagan wrote in his diary in December 1984. Cuba, however, threatens retaliation, jamming American radio stations all the way to the Midwest, 
what to do. Right now, I don't know. On the diplomatic front, the State Department had been trying to smooth the way for Radio Marti by telling the Cubans not to overreact. After all, it was just a Cuban service of the Voice of America, they pointed out, and VOA had been broadcasting to Cuba for years. But the Cubans understood perfectly well that Radio Marti was designed with subversive intent, and naming it after José Marti, the hero of Cuban independence, added insult to injury. Castro thought that his concessions on the migration agreement and willingness to discuss other issues would lead Washington to shelve plans for the radio. But Radio Marti was as much a product of domestic politics as of foreign policy. The station was the top priority of the newly formed Cuban American National Foundation, CANF, a lobbying group of wealthy Miami exiles created to assure that no U.S. president would make concessions to Castro's Cuba. During the 1980s and 1990s, it would become the most powerful domestic political voice on U.S.-Cuban relations, dominating the policy discourse, punishing its foes, and rewarding its friends with campaign contributions. Urged onward by CANF's founder and chairman, Jorge Mascanosa, Reagan decided on May 17, 1985, that Radio Marti should begin broadcasting forthwith. It went on the air three days later, May 20, 1985. Cuba's Independence Day. Havana's reaction was predictably angry. Castro was said to be personally insulted that the United States had launched the propaganda broadcasts despite his repeated overtures for better relations. Instead of retaliating with radio broadcasts of his own, however, Castro canceled the migration agreement and halted Cuban-American visits to the island. No one in Washington had expected Cuba's response, Skaug admitted. The Cubans had outsmarted us. Cuba also canceled the June meeting to review implementation of the Migration Accord, Furch was disinvited from his farewell meeting with Castro, and couldn't even get Padron to return his calls. The agreement, which had taken over two years to negotiate, lasted just four months. The public tone of relations turned poisonous as well. On May 29th, just over a week after Radio Marti began broadcasting, Castro condemned U.S. policy in Southern Africa, calling Reagan a liar and the United States an ally of apartheid. A few weeks later, Reagan railed against Cuba as part of a new international version of Murder Incorporated. Cuba, Nicaragua, and others were terrorist states engaged in acts of war against the United States, he said. We are not going to tolerate these attacks from outlaw states run by the strangest collection of misfits, looney tunes, and squalid criminals since the advent of the Third Reich. Not to be rhetorically outgunned, Fidel excoriated Reagan as a madman, an imbecile, and a bum, the worst terrorist in the history of mankind. Disappointed and perplexed at the sudden turn for the worse, the Cubans gave up hope of any bilateral improvement during Reagan's presidency. This is definitely one of the worst moments in our relations, lamented a senior Cuban official. In May 1986, however, Washington received an indirect hint through the Soviet Union that the Cubans were rethinking their position on Radio Marti and the Immigration Accord. During a regional consultation on Latin America, Skaug asked Soviet diplomat Vladimir Kazimirov why the Cubans had suspended the migration agreement, which served their interests as well as Washington's. Kazimirov replied that the Cubans realized they might have acted in haste. 
Within days, Washington had an opportunity to take Havana's temperature on renewing the migration agreement. Gregory Craig, foreign policy aide to Senator Edward Kennedy, Democrat of Massachusetts, was slated to travel to Cuba to accompany a released political prisoner to the United States. At the State Department's behest, Craig urged the Cubans to restore the migration accord. Castro responded with a proposal. Radio Marti would cease to be an obstacle if Cuba was granted an equivalent right to broadcast to the United States. Although the practical difficulties involved were enormous, Washington had previously told Havana it was not averse to the principle of equal access. Schultz took the Cuban proposal as a signal and proposed a negotiating session. The Cubans accepted. Convening at Cuba's embassy in Mexico City, the July 7 to 9, 1986 talks brought together the same principles who forged the migration agreement in the first place, Kozak and Skarog leading the U.S. side, Alarcón and Arbesu leading the Cubans. Each side had overestimated the other's need for success, however. The U.S. delegation came to Mexico City believing Cuba wanted face-saving egress from a mutual dilemma, Skarog wrote of the meeting. The Cubans came believing that the United States government, under siege from Cuban emigres in Miami and desperate to rid itself of the Marial criminals, might be ready and able to grant Cuba substantial concessions in broadcasting. To the Cubans, equal radio access meant the ability to broadcast to the same percentage of the population in the United States that Radio Marti could reach in Cuba. Technically, that would have required forcing many U.S. broadcasters off the air which the U.S. team was unwilling to countenance. In short order, the talks deadlocked and ended with no plans for further sessions. Another year would pass before the two sides returned to the bargaining table. A difficult year it was. Washington launched the first of what would become an annual campaign in Geneva to have Cuba condemned by the U.N. Human Rights Commission for its treatment of political dissidents. In December 1986, a rare overflight of Cuban territory by an SR-71 reconnaissance aircraft prompted several days of massive demonstrations outside the U.S. interests section, following which Cuba prohibited cargo supply flights to the diplomatic post. In February 1987, the head of the U.S. interests section, Curtis W. Cammon, was reassigned and not replaced for several months. In July, the crisis culminated with Cuban charges that dozens of U.S. diplomats had engaged in spying, an accusation backed by hours of videotape of the diplomats dropping messages for their Cuban contacts, many of whom turned out to be double agents. Our relations have dipped lower than what we thought could be the lowest point, Alarcón told Washington Post reporter Julia Preston. For a time, it seemed as if the interests sections— the last vestige of President Carter's improvement in bilateral relations might be closed. In reality, though, neither side wanted to lose these important listening posts. A series of meetings in Washington and Havana eventually led to a resolution of the supply flights problem. In September 1987, as temperatures cooled, the Cubans offered an olive branch of sorts. Alarcón informed John J. J. Taylor, the new head of the U.S. interests section, that he would be willing to meet in Havana with Kozak, and anyone Kozak wants to bring along, to discuss a range of bilateral issues, including radio broadcasting. Cuba does not wish to be like the bad neighbor who in an apartment building turns up his radio late at night and wakes everyone, Alarcón explained. Washington replied, 
that talks would have to be in New York or on neutral ground, and the agenda would have to be the same as Mexico City in 1986, migration and radio issues. The Cubans agreed, and talks were set for November 4, 1987, in Montreal. As luck would have it, the flight carrying the Cuban delegation to Montreal was forced to make an unscheduled stop in New York, where the U.S. Immigration and Naturalization Service detained the Cubans for illegal entry and formally deported them. Such undiplomatic behavior might well have scuttled the talks before they began, but the Cubans took this misadventure with good humor boded well. After some preliminaries, Alarcón went straight to the point, suggesting a way to break the deadlock. Rather than hold the Migration Accord hostage to resolution of the radio broadcasting issue, why not restore the Migration Accord and simply agree to continue talking about radio issues? The U.S. side was taken aback. This was, in a few words, the solution to the long struggle over the Migration Agreement, Skaug reflected. Kozak drafted the appropriate language for a new agreement, Alarcón edited it slightly, and the two teams took the draft back to their governments for approval. On November 19th, the U.S. and Cuban delegations convened once again in Mexico City to formally sign the new accord. Arriving late at the U.S. ambassador's residence, the Cubans found the U.S. diplomats relaxing in the living room with a fire in the fireplace and piano music in the background. Taking in the idyllic tableau, Alarcón quipped, I feel like dropping concessions all around. In truth, he had already dropped the big one in Montreal. The Cubans had accepted the U.S. position on migration, with no tangible concession on radio broadcasting other than to discuss it further. In the end, as both sides must have surmised, further discussions produced no progress at all. Cuba's willingness to give up the linkage between radio broadcasting and migration, thereby surrendering what leverage the Migration Accord gave them, had several sources. First, the Migration Accord was in Cuba's interest, not only because it enabled Castro to export former political prisoners to the United States, but because it regularized normal migration and thereby reduced the pressure for socially disruptive and politically embarrassing bursts of illegal migration like Camarioca and Mariel. Second, Radio Marti had proved to be more annoyance than threat. Suspending the migration agreement had been an angry reaction a Cuban diplomat told the New York Times, shortly before the migration talks resumed. We are now more flexible in the way we see Radio Marti. Most importantly, however, another issue had risen to the top of both the Cuban and the U.S. agendas, overshadowing migration and radio broadcasting. Southern Africa This is the end of the CD. The audiobook continues on the next CD. Constructive Engagement from Cape Town to Havana. In 1981, Ronald Reagan's policy toward Southern Africa, like his policy toward Central America, focused on the east-west dimension of the conflict. He replaced Carter's policy of ostracizing South Africa with constructive engagement. Secretary Haig described the policy as intended to establish a new relationship with South Africa based on a realistic appraisal of our mutual interests in the Southern African region which he summarized as reducing Soviet influence by getting the Cubans out of Angola. To that end, Assistant Secretary of State for African Affairs Chester A. Crocker's strategy was to undertake an elaborate, multiplayer diplomatic process aimed at producing a quid pro quo. South Africa would comply with UN Resolution 435 
by withdrawing from Namibia, Southwest Africa, and accepting the territory's independence in exchange for the total withdrawal of Cuban troops from Angola. The negotiations Crocker hoped to broker were extraordinarily complex, involving not only the actors on stage, South Africa and Angola, but also those behind the scenes, Cuba, the Soviet Union, Namibia's independence movement, the Southwest African People's Organization, SWAPO, pro-Western guerrillas in Angola, Jonas Savimbi's Union for the Total Independence of Angola, UNITA, and the African frontline states bordering South Africa, Botswana, Mozambique, Tanzania, Zambia, and Zimbabwe. Yet despite the daunting nature of the task, Crocker's vision had a certain logic. The South Africans refused to get out of Namibia on the grounds that they needed a buffer between them and Cuban troops in Angola. The Angolans refused to send the Cubans home because they needed them to fend off the South African army on their southern border. A process linking Namibian independence to Cuban withdrawal would meet the nominal security concerns of both sides. By July 1981, Hague had extracted from South Africa an agreement in principle that it would implement Resolution 435 if the Cubans withdrew from Angola. Washington's engagement with Angola was less constructive. At first, the Angolans reacted badly to Crocker's linkage idea, seeing it as a threat to their security and a retreat from the UN commitment to unconditional independence for Namibia. A joint communique from Angola and Cuba in February 1982 declared that the Cuban presence in Angola was a bilateral matter between two sovereign states, and that a gradual drawdown of Cuban troops would commence only after Namibian independence. However, the Angolans did not close the door to further consultations with Washington, and gradually their position evolved. By April 1983, the Angolans had agreed that Cuban troop withdrawal could, in fact, be timed to specific benchmarks in the Namibian independence process. With this opening, Crocker thought the time had come to speak directly with Cuba. There had been no contact with the Cubans since Dick Walters' tete-a-tete with Castro 18 months earlier, Crocker recalled. The absence of such contact meant that we were flying partially blind. Nothing came of the suggestion, however. Secretary Schultz, a stalwart supporter of Crocker's efforts, was in eclipse in mid-1983. Control over foreign policy had migrated temporarily to hardliners in the NSC staff under National Security Advisor William P. Clark, who thought that talking to Cuba about Africa legitimized its presence there. In 1984, as the pace of diplomacy quickened, the Cubans began signaling to Washington their desire to become involved directly. On February 22nd, the Cuban newspaper Granma ran an article characterizing the U.S. mediation effort as constructive, a sharp departure from Havana's usual polemics. It was clear to me that this was a signal, John Furch at the U.S. Interests section recalled. He relayed the news to Washington. A few weeks later, discussing Cuban troops in Angola with the Washington Post, Vice President Carlos Rafael Rodriguez said, We have never envisioned an overlong presence of our forces. We are prepared for the moment when it is necessary and appropriate to begin the process of withdrawal. On April 17th, Castro sent a message to the U.S. Interests Section proposing that Cuba and the United States maintain contact for the purpose of exchanging views, perceptions, and information that could contribute to the peaceful solution of conflicts in the area. Washington responded immediately that 
Assistant Secretary Crocker has considered it very important to maintain communication with Cuba on this problem. A few weeks later, in response to another Cuban diplomatic note, Washington suggested that if Cuba wished to elaborate its thinking on southern Africa, perhaps José Luis Padrón might serve as interlocutor. Shortly thereafter, in July 1984, Padrón contacted Furch to probe the details of how Washington envisioned a southern African settlement. Padrón affirmed that Cuba expected to withdraw its troops from Angola in the context of a regional accord and suggested that Havana and Washington hold direct bilateral discussions to help move the peace process forward. Clearly, they wanted to have a dialogue, Furch recalled. They wanted to be part of the negotiations that Crocker had initiated. Washington still opposed giving the Cubans a seat at the table, but hinted that a cooperative attitude from Havana would be rewarded in unspecified ways. Rather than opening a formal dialogue, the State Department proposed a periodic exchange of views about the talks through the interests section. Behind the scenes, the Cubans were trying to be constructive. In October 1984, the diplomatic process took a major step forward when the Angolans gave Washington a new proposal, crafted jointly with Cuba, outlining a timetable for Cuban troop withdrawal based on the implementation of Resolution 435. This version had Cuban fingerprints all over it, Crocker recalled. It was not a proposal South Africa would accept, but it was a point of departure for the tough negotiations to come. In December, the Angolans proposed that Cuba be brought into the talks. Once again, Washington refused. The negotiation was already tremendously complex, and adding Cuba risked adding complications from the always volatile U.S.-Cuban bilateral relationship. Moreover, the domestic politics of opening a dialogue with Cuba were still not fortuitous. Hardline Republicans wanted Washington to embrace South Africa and UNITA without reservation, overthrow the Angolan government, and drive the Cuban expeditionary force into the sea. To these partisans, negotiations with any outpost of the evil empire was tantamount to appeasement. It was difficult enough sustaining our Africa policies in Washington, Crocker wrote, without the added burden of having to meet some Cuban demand or to explain why we had legitimized Castro's African policies. In retrospect, though, Crocker wondered if stonewalling Cuba in 1984 was a mistake. A case can be made that we missed an important opportunity, he wrote later. Had the Cubans been more directly vested in the outcome of the diplomatic process, perhaps it would not have collapsed so disastrously in 1985. In quick succession, South Africa announced it would establish a government of its own choosing in Namibia. South African commandos were captured trying to sabotage Gulf oil installations in Angola's Cabinda province, and the South African government responded to political unrest in its own townships with intensified repression. These events prompted the adoption of U.S. economic sanctions, which ruptured Washington's dialogue with Pretoria. In mid-1985, hardliners in the Reagan administration won congressional repeal of the Clark Amendment that had prohibited CIA covert aid to UNITA, which ruptured Washington's dialogue with Angola. Coincidentally, relations with Cuba were soured by the advent of Radio Marti. Between February and May 1985, Castro went from calling Crocker's diplomacy a positive influence and offering Cuban cooperation to charging Washington with being an ally of South African apartheid unfit to mediate the region's conflicts. 
Crocker's negotiations remained stalled for two years. Then, on the eve of a visit to Havana by Angolan President Eduardo dos Santos in late July 1987, Castro sent a private inquiry to Washington through Peggy Delaney, the daughter of international banker David Rockefeller. I didn't want to use the interests section channel because I wanted to do this very discreetly, Castro explained to Dos Santos, according to the declassified transcript of their summit meeting. If you send something through the interests section, a month or two can go by without any response. Cuba was prepared to facilitate a negotiated settlement in southern Africa, but wanted a place at the bargaining table, since any accord involving Cuban withdrawal obviously had an impact on Cuban interests. Cuba is ready to search for just political solutions to this problem, Fidel asserted in his verbal message, carried by Delaney. But we need the United States to respond concretely to a question. Will the U.S. government accept Cuban participation along with Angola, in the conversations taking place to search for solutions to the problem of Southern Africa. Delaney conveyed the message in a meeting with National Security Advisor Frank Carlucci, Crocker, and several other officials. They responded positively, she reported back to Fidel. Crocker claimed that Cuban participation was up to the Angolans, a position that both Castro and Dos Santos took as a good omen. At the close of the Castro-Dos Santos summit, the leaders issued a communique calling for the resumption of negotiations on Cuban withdrawal, and the Angolans followed up with a note to Washington demanding that Cuban negotiators be included. Castro's proposal set off a six-month battle inside the Reagan administration over whether to let the Cubans into the negotiating process. Assistant Secretary for Inter-American Affairs Elliot Abrams resisted Cuban participation fiercely. Aside from the fact that I have seen no evidence to subscribe to the notion that Cuban participation would be helpful on the substance of the negotiations, Abrams wrote to Jay Taylor at the U.S. Interests section, we have absolutely no desire to contribute to the enhancement of Cuba's stature by recognizing the role they have carved out for themselves by their military intervention in Africa. Over the ensuing months, Washington was pressured from several directions on the Cuba issue. The Angolans raised it in talks with Crocker in July and again in September. The withdrawal of Cuban troops cannot be discussed without the participation of the sovereign state that sent these troops, Angolan Foreign Minister Afonso Van Dumem Mbinda insisted. We are convinced that their participation will contribute in a constructive manner. The moment has arrived to include Cuba in our discussions. Soviet Foreign Minister Eduard Shevardnadze raised it with Schultz before the December 1987 summit between Reagan and Mikhail Gorbachev. In working-level meetings leading to the summit, the Soviets reiterated that the Cubans would accept total withdrawal as part of an agreement, but they needed to participate in the settlement. The Cubans, too, kept pressing. In September, when Alarcón accepted a U.S. proposal that the two sides meet on migration and radio issues, he added that the Cubans would also like to have an informal dialogue about several other issues, including Angola. In Havana, Jay Taylor was not sure whether the Cubans were truly willing to contribute constructively to the Southern Africa mediation, but he knew the Angolans would never accept an agreement the Cubans opposed. Cuban cooperation, I believe, will be necessary not just in physically withdrawing its troops, but in deciding on the terms, Taylor advised Washington. Moreover, Taylor believed that the dramatic changes underway in the Soviet Union under Mikhail Gorbachev 
and the warming relationship between the two superpowers had convinced Castro to seek better relations with Washington. The most important factor that impels Castro to favor a settlement in Angola is Castro's desire to normalize relations with the United States and his recognition that a settlement of the Angolan CTW, Cuban Total Withdrawal Issue, is a prerequisite, Taylor cabled Washington. If he can withdraw honorably from Angola, he would do so, at least in part with the expectation that this could improve the prospects for a turnaround with the United States. Taylor concluded that there was nothing to lose by engaging in informal talks, as Alarcón had suggested. Abrams remained unconvinced. He wrote back blasting the Cubans for proposing a grab bag of issues of interest to Cuba to be discussed on Cuban terrain, as if we were suing for peace. Abrams feared the Cubans would somehow use the occasion of bilateral talks with Washington about Angola to some unspecified but perverse political advantage. Nor was Taylor himself spared from Abrams' diatribe. Having just recently arrived in Havana to replace John Furch, Taylor was not competent to judge Cuba's motives. Abrams upbraided him. Notwithstanding Abrams' fear that Cuba would sabotage the talks despite Washington, the Cubans had good reasons to promote a settlement. Havana's self-interest mandated an honorable exit strategy from a war that had gone on far longer than expected. Moscow, Cuba's quartermaster in Africa, was trying to extricate itself from regional conflicts. Without Soviet logistical support, the Cuban military presence in Angola would be unsustainable anyway. And a settlement that assured both Namibian independence and the elimination of South African troops on Angola's border achieved the principal security aims for which Cuba had deployed troops in the first place. We are trying to join this international detente, Castro told his aides during a November 1987 review of Angola policy, as reported in a declassified transcript of the meeting. We are trying because we too want to enjoy peace. The Africa Bureau at State had no particular love for the Cubans, but it saw them as too influential to exclude. Nobody liked the Cubans. Nobody trusted the Cubans. Nobody wanted to negotiate with them, recalled Larry Knapper, one of Crocker's deputies. But we, the people in the Africa Bureau involved with the negotiations, believed it was essential that the Cubans participate because the Angolans were completely dependent on them. At Crocker's insistence, Michael Kozak and Kenneth Skaug were finally authorized to speak with the Cubans about Angola during the Montreal Migration Talks, but strictly and only informally and on the side, that is, apart from a formal agenda. Alarcón complained to them that Washington appeared to have decided to shut Cuba out of the Southern Africa mediation. This was a mistake, he argued, because Cuba was interested in finding an honorable withdrawal, but only if given a place at the table. Back in Havana, Alarcón made the same argument to Taylor over lunch at the U.S. residence. Clearly, if the issue is Cuban troop withdrawal, Cuba must be involved, Alarcón reasoned. The lack of a civil dialogue with Washington on this important issue was regrettable. I told him that once the Mariel Agreement was restored, a discussion of broader differences would be possible, Taylor reported to Washington. He noted that this point had been made in Montreal. With the Cuban concession on migration, Alarcón had expected Washington to reciprocate with movement on Angola. Taylor was impressed by Alarcón's straightforward avowal that Cuba would act constructively in southern Africa if given the opportunity.
In Washington, the battle between Abrams and Crocker was heating up, fueled in part by Jay Taylor. Taylor had discovered that Abrams was not sharing Taylor's reporting on the Cuban attitude toward Southern Africa with the State Department's Africa Bureau. To Taylor, this was highly unprofessional. As it happened, Taylor had served in China with Chaz Freeman, Crocker's principal deputy, who he now contacted directly. Armed with Taylor's reports, Freeman and Crocker were able to convince George Schultz that it was time to bring the Cubans into the game. On Christmas Day, 1987, Taylor received instructions to meet with Jorge Risquet, a member of the Communist Party's political bureau and the senior official overseeing Cuban policy toward Africa. Taylor met in Risquet's office with Risquet and José Antonio Arbesu, a veteran of the 1978 talks between Cuba and the Carter administration. According to Risquet's declassified memorandum of the conversation, Taylor began by reading from an aid memoir that was not very conciliatory in tone, accusing Cuba of having done nothing to contribute to achieving a settlement and making matters worse by reinforcing its troops. What are your intentions in Angola? Taylor asked. Is it Cuba's intention to facilitate or obstruct a concrete and comprehensive schedule for the withdrawal of all Cuban forces? Risquet complained that Cuba still had not received a concrete answer as to whether the United States would agree to Cuban participation in the negotiations, a question raised during the migration talks in Montreal and Mexico City, and raised again in the message carried by Peggy Delaney. In responding to the Delaney message, the United States had suggested that Cuba could participate if Angola requested it, but the Angolans had requested it, and still the United States would not give a definitive answer. We are part of this conflict. We have the right to participate in these negotiations, Risquet declared. We affirm once again that Cuba, like Angola, is disposed to negotiate seriously with the United States to find a solution. Cuba would not complicate the agenda, Risquet pledged. The U.S. government fears that we will use these negotiations to raise issues about our bilateral differences. We assure you that is not our intention. Signaling a major change in U.S. policy, Taylor replied, We do not rule out the participation of Cuba in the conversations. The dialogue on Africa resumed on January 11, 1988, when Kozak, Skarg, Alarcón, and Arbesu met again in Mexico to review progress implementing the Migration Accord. To entice the Cubans into cooperating on Angola, the U.S. side held out a carrot, an accord on Angola, would contribute to improved U.S.-Cuban relations, the Cubans were told. Over the ensuing months, the bilateral conversations, not negotiations, on Angola continued between Taylor, Risquet, and Alarcón, but the main arena of diplomacy became the multi-party talks. Shortly after the Mexico City meeting, the United States agreed to allow the Angolans to add a Cuban contingent to their negotiating team. The first direct Cuban participation came on January 29, 1988, in Luanda, with Risquet leading the Cubans. Their participation produced quick results. For the first time, Cuba and Angola agreed in principle to complete, rather than partial, Cuban troop withdrawal. A second round of talks in March produced a Cuban-Angolan proposed timetable for withdrawal. Stretching over four years, it was too long, but it was a start. Over the next nine months, diplomats from three countries would meet twelve times with U.S. mediators, gradually hammering out a timetable for carrying out the Namibian track and the Angolan track simultaneously. In July 1988, Carlos Aldana Escalante joined the Cuban delegation. 
Aldana, also a member of the Communist Party's political bureau, was chief of ideological affairs and international relations for the party. Crocker had complained to the Angolans and Soviets that Risquet was too ideological and confrontational. Aldana, on the other hand, proved conciliatory and purposeful. A moderate reformer within the Cuban leadership, who, by his own admission, found Gorbachev's reforms attractive, Aldana believed that Cuba's interests would best be served by repairing relations with the United States. As the Soviets disengaged from Third World conflicts and improved relations with Washington, Cuba would be wise not to get caught in the middle between the superpowers. In one conversation over lunch, Aldana offered me an eloquent description of how much Cuba would gain from an honorable end to the conflicts in southern Africa, Crocker recalled. He urged the Cuban to tell this to the South Africans, who still doubted Cuba's bona fides. He went to the table and made a presentation, which South African officials were still talking about three years later. Aldana argued that nothing could be more honorable for Cuba than withdrawal of our own free will and in the context of Resolution 435, so that a new nation is born. He called for a peace without losers, in which each nation made a positive contribution to reaching accord. It was, Crocker thought, a virtuoso performance that changed the tenor of the talks. As one round of talks followed another, Crocker's respect for Cuban diplomacy grew. To discover what the Cubans think is an art form, he cabled Secretary Schultz. They are prepared for war as much as they are for peace. We are witnesses to a great tactical virtuosity and a true creativity at the negotiation table. Crocker soon realized that the Cuban position was being closely monitored and directed by Fidel Castro himself. Cuban technicians recorded every session for transmittal to Havana, and the Cuban delegation insisted on meeting only in locales where they had an embassy with secure communications. Castro had the clearest strategy of any of the parties, and his determination to get an agreement pulled the Angolans along in his wake, Crocker wrote. The Cubans were open to a much shorter timeline for withdrawal than the Angolans, who feared for their security once the Cubans departed. We might still be at the table today, were it not for the Cuban factor, Crocker concluded. The final breakthrough came in Round 10, in Geneva, in November 1988, just after George H. W. Bush's victory in the U.S. presidential election. Knowing that U.S. policy would soon come under review by a new administration, and that diplomatic personnel would inevitably change, the parties had an incentive to finish their work before Inauguration Day. As the round opened, the South Africans proposed Cuban withdrawal over 24 months. The Cubans and Angolans held out for 30. They agreed to split the difference at 27 months, and the deal was done. On December 22, 1988, representatives of the four nations gathered at UN headquarters in New York to formally sign the three-party accord and a separate side agreement between Cuba and Angola, spelling out the details of the Cuban withdrawal. Secretary of State Schultz praised the accord as a momentous turning point in the history of Southern Africa, but the discourse went downhill from there. Angolan Foreign Minister Afonso Van Dunem demanded an end to foreign meddling in Angola's internal affairs, a reference to Washington's continued covert aid to Jonas Savimbi's guerrillas. Cuban Foreign Minister Isidoro Malmierca blasted the United States and South Africa for causing enormous destruction and tens of thousands of deaths in Angola. 
South African Foreign Minister Peek Bota shot back that he'd be happy to debate the relative merits of South Africa's and Cubans' human rights records. A surprised Secretary Schultz responded to Malmierka, adding that under the circumstances it was miraculous that there was any agreement at all. In an aside to Crocker, Schultz added, That's some bunch of characters you've been working with. George H. W. Bush and Castro's Final Hours Fidel Castro expected that Cuba's cooperation on southern Africa would lead to better relations with Washington, just as U.S. diplomats had promised. In Havana, J. Taylor assumed George H. W. Bush's new administration would make good on that commitment. When the multi-party talks produced an agreement, Taylor began planning for an expanded bilateral dialogue. I wrote a thought piece suggesting options on how we might follow up on our commitment to the Cubans that, if they cooperated in a positive outcome on Angola, this would result in improved U.S.-Cuban relations. He recommended discussing cooperation in areas of mutual interest, such as migration and narcotics control, and making some modest changes in the embargo, letting it be known to the Cubans that this was the beginning step, that if there were more changes in Cuban behavior on Central America and human rights, then other things would follow. Taylor was stunned when Michael Kozak, now Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for Latin America, replied that Washington had made no such commitment. I got a cable from Mike, quite a strong cable. It was a zinger saying that I didn't know what I was talking about, and we never made any commitment to the Cubans about improving relations. To jog Kozak's memory, Taylor sent him the numbers of the cables describing the commitment with the talking points that Secretary Schultz had approved and that Kozak himself had presented to the Cubans in Mexico City a year before. I heard nothing further on the subject from him, Taylor recalled. Needless to say, no consideration was given to following up our pledge. I wondered what our reactions would have been if Castro had blatantly turned his back on a commitment made to us. In March 1989, just two months after inauguration, Secretary of State James Baker sent a confidential cable to all U.S. diplomatic posts explaining that the Bush administration would not improve relations with Havana, despite Cuba's withdrawal from Angola, because Cuban behavior has not changed sufficiently to warrant a change in U.S. attitudes. They saw Cuba's actions on the Angolan peace process as a retreat which signified weakness. Taylor said of senior Bush officials. Consequently, in their mind, the U.S. goal continued to be to isolate and weaken Castro as much as possible. Despite this refusal to honor Washington's pledge to Cuba, the Bush administration soon confronted the same imperative that drew the Reagan administration to the bargaining table. Secretary Baker's top priority in Latin America was to get the unpopular and divisive wars in Central America off Washington's policy agenda so he could focus on managing the end of the Cold War. For eight years, Reagan had pursued military solutions to these conflicts to no avail. Bush was willing to accept diplomatic settlements, but that meant dealing with the Cubans, who were key players in Central America, just as they had been in Southern Africa. Havana provided military aid and advisors to Nicaragua's Sandinista government and supported the guerrillas fighting the U.S.-backed government in El Salvador. Fidel Castro could either foster or obstruct negotiations on both fronts. Assistant Secretary of State for Inter-American Affairs Bernard Aronson authorized Taylor to open informal discussions with the Cubans about Central America. Once again, Carlos Aldana, 
served as Taylor's principal contact. Aldana seemed to believe that the new Bush administration might be amenable to a real breakthrough in U.S.-Cuban relations, Taylor said, but he understood that for Washington, the test would be Central America. Through 1989, Taylor and his political officer, Fulton Armstrong, a CIA analyst detailed to the Department of State, met frequently with Aldana and his assistant, Alfredo Garcia Almiela. Cuba wanted to contribute to a political solution in Central America, as it had done in Angola, Aldana said. To that end, Havana would support the Esquipulas peace process, in which the five Central American presidents had agreed to hold free elections and end support for insurgents in neighboring countries. Cuba would also agree to accept the results of an election in Nicaragua. In the rapidly changing international environment, Aldana conceded, communism was not an appropriate model for Nicaragua. He also claimed Cuba had already halted arms flows to El Salvador and would not resume them if Havana was formally brought into the peace process. Gorbachev's Initiative While Taylor conferred with Aldana, Washington focused on leveraging Soviet cooperation. At Baker's suggestion, President Bush decided to make Central America a test of Mikhail Gorbachev's new foreign policy. If the Soviets sincerely wanted to resolve regional conflicts, they should stop supplying economic and military aid to Nicaragua and Cuba. We should subject the Soviets to Chinese water torture on this subject, Baker told the president. We'll just keep telling them over and over, drop, 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 that they've got to be part of the solution in Central America, or else they'll find lots of other problems harder to deal with. On March 27, 1989, just before Gorbachev traveled to Cuba, President Bush sent him a letter spelling out Washington's view. It is hard to reconcile your slogans with continuing high levels of Soviet and Cuban assistance to Nicaragua, Bush wrote. If this did not stop, it would inevitably affect the nature of the U.S.-Soviet relationship. On a trip to Moscow that same month, Baker told Soviet Foreign Minister Edward Shevardnadze that better relations between the superpowers were impossible unless the Soviet Union stopped interfering in Central America. Shevardnadze suggested that Washington talk directly with the Cubans about their role in the region. I'm afraid that doesn't work, Baker replied. Meeting in Havana on April 3rd, Gorbachev briefed Fidel Castro on Bush's letter, and the two discussed how to respond. At Castro's suggestion, they agreed to make a sweeping proposal to Bush for complete cessation of supplies of weapons to Central America by all sides. Gorbachev hoped that settling the Central American conflict might provide an opportunity to settle hostilities between Washington and Havana as well. Castro was skeptical. He briefed Gorbachev in detail on Cuba's collaborative role in the Southern African negotiations. The talks had been very difficult, he noted, but Cuba had persisted with firmness and flexibility. Washington had promised that if Cuba withdrew its troops from Africa, then our relations would improve. Instead, in a concession to the most reactionary circles in the United States, the U.S. administration was about to launch a new propaganda television station aimed at Cuba, TV Marti, which Castro characterized as an aggressive act. Gorbachev nevertheless suggested that they use Central America as an opportunity to widen the agenda. We would go beyond the boundaries of the Central American problems and present to Bush the collective platform of the Cuban leadership, 
how it sees the world today. Truly, this is an excellent idea, Castro replied. On April 5th, as he accompanied the Soviet leader to the airport, Fidel asked Gorbachev to raise the possibility of improving U.S.-Cuban relations with Bush. For us, it is politically very important that you should try and influence Bush at a time and form that you consider most appropriate. The time and place Gorbachev chose was during the Malta summit on December 2, 1989, when he met with Bush aboard the cruise ship Maxim Gorky. In private, Gorbachev related Castro's interest in better ties with Washington. Castro essentially asked for our assistance with the normalization of relations with the U.S., Gorbachev reported to Bush. Perhaps we should think about some kind of mechanism to begin contacts on this issue. It seems to me that Castro understands how much the world has been changing. I felt it in my conversation with him, but he has a remarkably strong sense of self-esteem and independence. Bush asked Gorbachev if he could repeat Castro's proposal verbatim. His very words? Find a way to make the president aware of my interest in normalization. Bush was dismissive. Let's put all our cards on the table about Castro, he replied. Castro is like a sea anchor as you move forward and the Western Hemisphere moves toward democracy. He is against all of this. We have had feelers from Castro, but never with an indication of a willingness to change. Instead, Bush warned that continued Soviet support for Nicaragua and Cuba was the single most disruptive element in U.S.-Soviet bilateral relations. Castro is embarrassing you, Bush scolded. He's detracting from your credibility, violating everything you stand for. The one thing, sir, you must understand is that America cannot accept your support for Havana and Managua. Cut support for Cuba, Bush pressed, so we are not on opposite sides. I've told Castro that he's out of step with us and that he should be doing what the Eastern Europeans are doing, Gorbachev replied, but he's his own man. We cannot dictate to him. If Washington wanted Cuban cooperation in Central America, it should open a dialogue with the Cubans directly. Mr. Bush reacted very coldly to my proposal, Gorbachev recalled. He indicated that the United States was not ready for any compromise in the matter. La TV que no se ve Back in Havana, the dialogue on Central America between Taylor and Aldana was complicated by the intrusion of a new issue, TV Marti. Just as Radio Marti derailed the 1985 Migration Accord, now U.S. plans to start television broadcasting to Cuba thwarted progress on Central America. TV Marti, like Radio Marti before it, was a pet project of the Cuban-American National Foundation, CANF, not the State Department. My reaction was that it was unwise to spend millions of dollars for an instrument that could easily be jammed by Cuba, Cuban Affairs Coordinator Ken Skaug recalled. But the die was cast at a June 1988 meeting between U.S. officials and Cuban-American supporters of TV Marti. Assistant Secretary Elliot Abrams and Skaug were carefully noncommittal until Vice President and presidential candidate Bush joined the group and gave T.B. Marti his unqualified endorsement. When Castro realized that Bush intended to go forward with the TV broadcasts, he warned that Cuba would use all available means to respond. On the one hand, Washington was seeking Cuban cooperation in Central America. On the other, 
it was preparing to spit in Cuba's eye, Aldana privately complained to Jay Taylor. Cuba would take TV Marti as evidence of Washington's implacable hostility, Aldana warned, and simply jam it. As an alternative, Aldana proposed opening Cuba to regular U.S. news broadcasts like CNN or PBS McNeil-Lehrer NewsHour. This seemed a rather remarkable proposal to be coming from a member of the Cuban Politburo, said Taylor, recalling his surprise. He cabled Washington, suggesting that the start of TV Marti be delayed while the United States explored these alternatives and continued discussions with the Cubans about Central America. One of Taylor's frequent diplomatic contacts in Havana was Soviet Ambassador Yuri Petrov, who reportedly had close ties to Raul Castro. Petrov wanted to promote better U.S.-Cuban relations in order to eliminate Cuba as a source of friction between Moscow and Washington. He assured Taylor that the Soviet Union was pressing the Cubans to support diplomatic settlements in Central America and that the Cubans were sincere when they said they would be prepared to cooperate. Petrov kept pushing for the Cubans to play a Central American card with us, formalizing what they publicly said they were doing, supporting a regional peace accord, recalled Taylor's political officer, Fulton Armstrong. In December 1989, Petrov told Taylor that the Cubans would soon offer Washington a specific proposal on diplomatic cooperation in the region. Taylor returned to Washington for consultations. I told Bernie Aronson that the Cubans wanted to know if they played a positive role in Central America, could they really expect a new era of U.S.-Cuban relations? Taylor, who thought the Cubans were serious, also advised Aronson that Castro could probably throw the Nicaraguan election train off the tracks if he chose to. Aaron instructed Taylor to tell the Cubans that Washington was open to hearing any specific proposal they might offer that would ensure free and fair elections in Nicaragua. If their proposals seemed helpful— Taylor was instructed to say, the Cubans could then be invited to participate in broader discussions, perhaps in the Esquipulas process, and this in turn would have consequences for their relations with the United States. It was the same promise Washington had made to the Cubans and reneged on regarding cooperation in southern Africa. TV Marti still had the potential to cut short this budding diplomatic opening, but Taylor was pleased to hear that an interagency study had concluded that TV Marti should be delayed while Washington explored Aldana's offer to accept a conventional broadcast alternative. Hopeful, Taylor returned to Havana on the evening of December 19th and immediately arranged to meet Aldana at his office the following morning to hear Cuba's proposal and deliver Washington's message. That night, however, the United States invaded Panama to overthrow the government of General Manuel Noriega, whom Washington charged with conspiring to ship Colombian cocaine to the United States. In the morning, tens of thousands of Cubans were spontaneously demonstrating in front of the interests section, Taylor recalled. A platform had been built overnight, and loudspeakers were broadcasting a steady stream of vitriolic speeches. Aldana's assistant, Alfredo Garcia Almieda, telephoned to cancel Aldana's meeting with Taylor, but asked if he could come by the interests section to convey a message. When he arrived, he had to push through the throng of protesters to get inside. It was, ironically, the first time a Cuban official had come to the interests section. Garcia Almieda was ushered in to see Taylor, whose secretary offered the Cuban a cup of coffee. After adding several spoons of what he thought was sugar, Garcia Almieda took a sip and gagged. This coffee! he sputtered. What are you trying to do to me? By mistake, 
Taylor's secretary had brought out salt rather than sugar. He expected to wake up in CIA headquarters in Langley or something. Taylor laughed. Once Garcia Almeida had been reassured that he was not being poisoned or shanghaied, the conversation got back on track. Because of the invasion of Panama, Taylor's meeting with Aldana would have to be postponed until things cooled, Garcia Almeida explained. But Aldana hoped to meet with Taylor early in the new year to present Cuba's proposal and resume the discussion on Central America. Aldana never delivered the Cuban proposal. Events overtook it. On February 25, 1990, the Sandinistas lost the election in Nicaragua and agreed to turn over power to their U.S.-backed opponents. With that, the value to Washington of Cuban cooperation in Central America plummeted. The Cuban card wasn't worth anything anymore, explained Armstrong. On February 9th, the National Security Council decided to go forward with T.B. Marti, despite the unanimous interagency report against it. At 1.45 a.m. on March 27th, it began broadcasting. The Cubans interpreted this as an insulting provocation that demonstrated a lack of U.S. interest in improving relations. In a heated denunciation of this trash, this outrage, this insult to our country, Castro dubbed the broadcasts teleaggression. Cuba promptly jammed not only TV Marti but Radio Marti as well. TV Marti was another nail in the coffin of cooperation on Central America, Armstrong recalled. The Cuban government jammed TV Marti so successfully that ordinary Cubans dubbed it La TV que no se ve, no see TV. Taylor and his staff traveled all around Havana and its suburbs to test reception and got nothing but static. Western journalists and Catholic priests reported the same result from across the island. But in Washington, T.B. Marti's patrons insisted that the vast majority of the Cuban population was watching the broadcasts, according to a dubious survey of newly arrived exiles. Taylor, in Washington for consultations, invited the U.S. information agency officials responsible for T.B. Marti to come to Cuba to see for themselves. Silence prevailed around the table, he recalled. I don't think anyone there really believed T.B. Marti signals were being received in Cuba. It was a Kafkaesque moment, a true Orwellian experience, to see a room full of grown, educated men and women so afraid for their jobs or their political positions that they could take part in such a charade. Beyond Central America and T.V. Marti, broader international developments also diminished Washington's interest in dialogue with Havana. The collapse of communism in Eastern Europe, beginning with the Polish elections in June 1989, created a sense of triumphalism in Washington. Communist regimes were falling like dominoes. The United States had won the Cold War. Surely Cuba's collapse could not be far behind. Castro es el próximo, was the slogan in Miami. Castro is next. Jorge Mascanosa's Cuban-American National Foundation wrote a constitution for a new government, which Mascanosa himself aspired to lead. The optimism was infectious. The CIA's National Intelligence Officer for Latin American, Brian Littell, believed the Cuban regime was riven by such serious divisions that Castro's imminent downfall was likely. Assistant Secretary Aronson thought so too, especially if Washington gave him a push. Bernie's thought at this time was that somehow what happened in Nicaragua could be replicated in Cuba, according to one of his aides. If Castro was truly a dead man walking, 
there was no reason to engage him in dialogue. The best policy was to simply wait for the successor regime. U.S. policy, focused since the 1960s on containing Cuba's international mischief, now reverted to the more ambitious aspiration of rolling back the revolution. U.S. diplomats in Havana felt pressure to endorse these prognostications of Castro's imminent demise, but being on the ground in Cuba gave Taylor and Armstrong perspective on the regime's strengths as well as its weaknesses. Our conclusion in 1989-1990 was that the crises at home and abroad constituted a serious blow to the government's credibility and to its previous image of near-invincibility.